Comic Geek Speak presents The Crisis Tapes, Episode 11, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Number 1, Part 2. Welcome back to The Crisis Tapes, probably a lot sooner than some of you expected. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Peter Rios. And, you know, we were just <laughs> – we got ourselves going in our last episode. We just thought we had to just keep on riding this wave of energy while it lasted. We still got that crisis buzz going on. We're still within a month of the publication of the first issue. We thought we'd better just keep on striking that iron while it was hot. Sounds good. That's a mouthful, that title. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for undertaking it. No problem. Your lips are a little limberer tonight than mine are. Okay. Um, well, how about we start off with a little bit of feedback? Um, we've got much excitement on the forum, on Facebook, on Twitter. People just – they can't believe their eyes that the, you know, <laughs> there's a crisis episode and um, – I think their eyeballs gonna... are going to implode when they see a second episode within like, a couple of weeks. That's amazing. Uh, we're not going to read everything, but you know, thank you so much for the feedback. I certainly read it all. I'm sure Adam has as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, there are a couple questions that came up that really deal with stuff that's not for, uh, you know, almost till the end of the maxi series. Right. Trying to deal with uh, things in their original published sequence here. So. Right. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm sure you know I'll, my I'll I'll keep track of some of those things, but there are a couple things in here that I thought would be fun to read. Um, how about we start with uh, Caliban's post there? Okay. And you said I could read this one. So. Yeah. All right. So from our friend Dr. Eamon Clark over in the UK, a.k.a. Caliban. Crisis math. Total time taken on footnotes and first 10 pages, 20 hours and 21 minutes. Time taken for those 10 pages was tw two hours plus change. Call it 12 minutes a page. There are another 326 pages to go, which is 3,912 minutes or 65 and a bit hours to come. Time bubble technology might be needed. <laughs> and, uh, Eamon, my friend, you didn't even take into account the crossovers. Oi. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, too, um, DM Hate says... Uh... He's a huge fan of Crisis. He is listening to the graphic audio version of Marv Wolfman's later novelization. And he asks uh, – well, basically he says, hope you cover that novel um, as well as are we intending to go through any of the tangents like either the crossover issues that came out with each month's issues or that 4.5 issue that came out years later? Well, um, the crossover issues, I think, are going to be a definite yes. I mean, we, we took the time to talk about the, the Monitor's little dinky cameos throughout the, the year 1984. I think we can definitely deal with uh, these crisis crossovers, some of which were extremely important to the main story, others of which were well, utterly tangential, just like a bunch of characters going, oh, look, the sky's red. Uh, that was kind of, it's kind of become a running joke, actually, in the years to come. Uh, any kind of a so-called crossover 
chapter or tie-in with a major event that just doesn't go any further than mentioning offhandedly that something's going on in other books in the same universe and, and doesn't really tie into the main story in any way more meaningful than that. Uh, but anyway, whether Red Sky crossover or more substantive crossover, we will be dealing with all of the, the bannered uh, crisis tie-ins and even a couple of non-bannered ones as uh, these episodes wear on. But uh, uh, And we'll, we'll probably do them... Uh, in their own separate episodes, as opposed to trying to incorporate discussions of the crossovers in episodes otherwise devoted to talking about issues of the main series. But yeah, right. we're going to get around to the crossovers eventually. And um, you know, Peter and I really haven't discussed this too much, but uh, yeah, that things like the you know, ancillary texts, like the uh, that, that Legends of the DCU Crisis number four and a half that uh, that DM Hate mentioned uh, by Wolfman and Paul Ryan. Yeah, that, that's something we definitely could address, but. Uh, uh, we'll have to decide among ourselves, Peter, whether or not we want to do that between our episodes on issue four and issue five, or if we just want to hold that off until like much later. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I'm no mind reader, but I'm wondering if you have the same thought I do in the sense in the sense that we are sort of taking a chronological look at this, and I think it's probably going to have more weight after the twelve issues are wrapped up to talk about it. When it actually was released, right? Yeah, because it was written at uh, a distance of about ten years from the conclusion of the actual crisis, and yeah. more than that, actually, I was in college, so we're talking late nineties. So yeah, more like uh, twelve or thirteen years after crisis wrapped, and um, it was written from it was kind of written in hindsight from from right. uh, the perspective of the late nineties. It was really more of a product of the late nineties. So even though it was intended to be inserted in a reading chronology in between issues four and five, it is it's really a late nineties comic, and it's uh, kind of looking it, it's a retrospect. Uh, treatment of of crisis and the events thereof. So I I think I do agree, Peter. It's probably better served uh, just putting that off until sometime after we've dealt with all twelve issues and footnoted yeah. them thoroughly. Not to mention, I mean, think about uh, all right. So we already have two parts on this first issue, and I'm you know I'm assuming that we're going to get it done tonight. But if not, then we go to part three. <laughs> so guess. we have twelve issues. Two of them are double sized. After this issue, um, we have all those crossovers. No doubt we're going to do post-episodes. We could, I should say. We could potentially do post-episodes of, you know, we sort of gave a status quo of the DC Universe prior to Crisis. Well, we could certainly do the same post. Mm, you bet we could. There's the History of the DC Universe two-part uh, uh, miniseries that we could look at. And along with that, like you said, that Legends 4.5 issue, I mean, the Crisis was constantly revisited after a point. There's that DC Legacies two-parter. Um, there was a Dead Man miniseries that the first issue went on to address some of the stuff in Crisis with Flash. Um, uh, there was an issue of that John Ostrander JLA Incarnations that mm -hmm. uh, was it was actually it had the, the a special Crisis crossover banner across the top. Yeah, of it, and it yeah. was published in like 2001. Yeah, I mean, just Crisis centric alone, Crisis on Infinite Earths. There are plenty of. There was that Stan Lee. Just imagine Stan Lee <laughs> creating the crisis, which is completely different. That would still. be fun to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we can go. But I think you're right. You know, I think I think we just need to stick with um, what we have now. And, and let's, let's just power through all that before we get too tangential. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, oh, you have something else? No, no. Two more here uh, real quick. So uh, let's uh, – um, this one is from Jack Soar. 
and he says, uh, maybe you could have a segment where those of us who re who read Crisis on its initial release could offer some memories, and uh, certainly that's um, not not my role, but that's that's what I'm trying to bring to it as much as I can. But yes, that's absolutely like you know emails, voicemails, anything that. Yeah. Uh, any kind of feedback that you would normally give to CGS, this is part of that, and uh, we would certainly play uh, some things about that because I'm sure there's some – everybody – I think we mentioned it last episode, this whole idea of being a crisis kid. I mean it was it was huge. It was huge. Just such a weird publishing thing that DC was doing, and, and I'm sure many people had many different reactions to it. Yeah, and we would be more than happy to hear um, reactions of other crisis kids out there. Um, so as Peter said, uh, email works just fine. You can reach us at either murd at comicgeekspeak.com or peter at comicgeekspeak.com. Um, as far as voicemail, I'm uh, uh, we have a number here. It's uh, 267-702-6642 if you want to leave a crisis-related voicemail. Or you could just post your thoughts to the, um, the, the Crisis Tapes episode talkback threads at thecomicforums.com. Which is where we got uh, those uh, the comment from Caliban and uh, the the inquiry about how we're going to treat crossovers and stuff like that. So, um, and one more here, um, Derek Wile, Derek Wile C or Derek Wills um, asks if we can touch on two tri- trivia questions. The first one being Dick Giordano originally asked which writer artist to handle a very early incarnation of crisis which would end with the dc universe ending and the following month all issues being restarted at number one so which writer artist meaning one person and then the second question is which artist which artist was originally announced as the as handling the art chores on the book were the crisis fun facts both and uh, i do not know the answer to either of those questions yeah and i I don't either. I've never – although the second part um, about an artist originally announces handling the art chores, um, George Corey – you know George Corey, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, from Tomorrow's. Right. Yes, from Tomorrow's and he's uh, working on a book right now called Comic Book Fever, which looks to be amazing. Um, I think it's coming out this summer sometime. He messaged me on Twitter a while back. With that same question, um, and at that time, I, I sort of said, "Really? There was a really, really? I, it just kind of, for no pun intended, it stumped me a little bit." And I, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't sure. But then now this poster is saying the same thing, and then I put this in with his first question about um, what writer artist. I don't know. I, some some of it is. I always just consider this Marv Wolfman's baby because of of his early connections with, uh, you know, the Monitor being a character called the Librarian. Right, so something he made up when he was a kid. Yeah, him and Len Wein coming to DC and talking about you know the fiftieth anniversary thing. So I don't know quite where. If Derek knows the answer, and by all means, please let us know. Or if he wants us to, if anybody else knows. Um, I would almost need to see it in print somewhere before I would take someone's um, memory because of all the articles I've read, I've never heard any of this. Not that it's not a possibility, 
But if there's a fanzine, if there's an article you can scan, I would love to see actual documented proof of this. So was I. Actually, one other idea for an episode I'd had a while ago was like a a crisis in the fan press episode where we took some time to look at uh, how uh, different uh, fan publications of that time were uh, looking at uh, the the crisis events and whatever hype that DC was building around it or that the magazines themselves were building around it. So if any if you can find you know any print mention of these uh, proto creators of crisis, um, well as as Peter said we'd like to see it. Yeah, yeah. So all all great feedback that and and everything else that other people wrote. Some of them just excited that there was an episode. So <laughs> here's here's to more. Yep. Thank you very much for writing in. We're, we're kind of excited too. Yeah. All right. Now down to brass tacks, huh? Yes. Time to get back to the issue itself. All right. So when we left our heroes, uh, it was uh, we we've got as far as page like the first half of page thirteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, Lila powered up. They split herself off into several different uh, harbinger cells and dispatched them to different Earths, different time periods to recruit, you know, to to take part in the summoning to bring the agents that the Monitor needed for the phase one of his uh, desperate scheme to protect the remaining Earths of the multiverse. Harbinger's um, splitting of her pers- of her body of her of her energy, um, reflecting the very first pages of this issue of the origins of the DC universe. Also splitting where where one should have been one, it became many. I um, see. Yeah. Yeah. So the lower right hand panel on page twelve echoes the third panel down on page one. Yeah. Wow. Nice little. I think it makes sense too. You know, especially with the whole. Each one being weaker than than if it was just one whole, um, I think there's something to say about Harbinger as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We'll see evidence of that as uh, this second half of this issue unfolds. Right. And in Monitor's possession, he does have uh, – or no, he, he is going to get Alexander Luthor Jr., who was sent from the destroyed Earth 3 – and Earth-3 so far is the only named Earth that we know of. Um, we were shown two Earths dying, but Earth-3 is the one that we as DC readers would know by this point. Um, you know, just trying to give some listeners a catch-up of, of what we've gone over to, to, to the point, to this point. So now... Now we get into the DC universe that we really know, or should know, or... Mm-hmm. Now, that we would know if we were reading DC Comics in 1985. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where um, initially when we didn't go over the characters on the cover in fine detail, I think this is where we can finally start doing that um, for one and then try to speculate on, you know, why. Why did Wolfman – why did the Wolfman choose <laughs> these characters and, you know, if you know of anything, you know, we'll just share our thoughts back and forth. So. Mm. Some cases I have an idea, and others I have none. Yeah, yeah, the, and believe me, none of this is. Um, I don't think any of my my picks or my speculations are. are um, it's not like I've, I've I've read proof of it. You know, it's yeah. just fun hindsight speculation. Some I think could really stick, and other stuff that's just just seems a little obvious, and other stuff I'm pulling out my butt. <laughs> Yeah, and I have to confess, I did not uh, do a first-hand interview with Marv Wolfman when I was preparing my thesis research. If I had, if I had just gotten together with CGS before I went away to grad school, could have <laughs> taken advantage of those connections. Me, I probably could have gotten an interview with him. Yeah. But uh, 
As it is, I never did that to my regret. And by so, this point, he's probably sick of and tired of talking about crisis. So <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he needed another crisis nerd coming sniffing around his doorstep <laughs> trying to pick his brain. But anyway, so we begin here with uh, one of the more uh, interesting uh, recruits that Harbinger was sent to fetch. Um, and uh, so uh, she soars down to Africa, Africa of Earth-1. We know this for a fact because uh, she's heading to a setting uh, with which Barry Allen, the Earth-1 Flash, has had uh, uh, frequent dealings and to which he's made frequent visits. It's a, a little uh, jungle valley in Africa, an Africa known only to a very few Gorilla City. Dun, dun, dun. And we find it's a wise and benevolent king, Solivar. Um, and we, I think we mentioned in the last issue that his name is misspelled throughout this issue. And I think his subsequent appearances in the next issue or two, it, it's spelled S-O-L-I-V-A-R. It's actually supposed to be S-O-L-O-V-A-R, you know, as in the wise Solomon, Solomon Solovar. And uh, that is one of the little errors that were uh, uh, redacted and uh, corrected in uh, the reprint editions of the and collections of the Crisis series. They amended that to S-O-L-O. And we find the aforementioned Solovar uh, sitting uh, in uh, – he's, uh, he's holding court. He's, uh, uh, he's actually meeting out some justice to a recently apprehended guerrilla criminal named Chorus. Uh, and uh, being a, a wise, just, and merciful monarch – and he goes out of his way to say that man's justice demands an eye for an eye, as if he knew some members of the uh, offensive species were listening in. Uh, but uh, we apes need but not be so barbaric. And so instead of uh, sentencing Chorus to death, because Chorus is a murderer, uh, Salavar sentences him to the more humane punishment of conversion. Go and become a useful, productive citizen. Mm -hmm. And there, now leave me, there are weightier troubles which plague me. Yes, and so heavy hanging the head that wears the crown mm -hmm. wanders out of his throne room to brood about the very problem that is the central problem of the Crisis Maxi series. Um, why don't we go through to the end of each of each character's scene and then we can go back. Because this, this takes place over two pages, so we might as well keep going and then we'll go back and sort of talk about some stuff. Yep. Yeah, it seems like two pages, or in some cases one and a half, is the average devoted to each recruit. Right. All right, so Solovar goes back to his uh, private quarters, um, and he's apparently guerrilla science, since uh, the science in Gorilla City is uh, in advance of uh, what is known to uh, human civilization on Earth-1. Uh, he is aware of uh, the coming danger to... Uh, Earth-1 to Earth-1's universe and many other universes besides. He doesn't seem to know many specifics, but uh, his scientists have told him that, uh, quote, our planet faces deadly peril. And he, again, he takes a cheap shot at human beings. I cannot understand why man has done nothing to... And then Harbinger pops in. Solovar wonders aloud, uh, who besides the Flash knows we exist? Harbinger shoots right back. The Monitor knows all, Solivar. He has seen the birth of this city as well as others hidden from the eyes of man. And then he summons Solivar to participate in a great adventure. Solivar tries to, I guess, physically uh, eject her from his chambers, but uh, he's unable to actually touch her using her uh, phasing ability. I guess since she's just a, a part of Harbinger, just one of the energy duplicates she sent uh, throughout all reality, she's... Uh, 
not entirely material to begin with, but she phases completely through his arm. Then as his guards come in, she just uh, grabs Solovar and uh, teleports away with him, uh, leaving a parting shot for the guards. You apes are more highly advanced than humans, yet like them, you know, as if she's not a human being, she's speaking from outside both species, yet like them, your first instinct is to violence. How sadly similar are your species. And then she and Solovar are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so just some real quick surface observations. Um, first time we see Harbinger outside of the cover is the first time in the story pages we actually see her you know, design. Right, as Harbinger as opposed to just yeah. as Lila. Yeah. Um, uh, very reminiscent uh, – it's kind of reminiscent of a Starfire-esque costume if you know George Perez's design for Starfire um, where a lot of it is metal. Um, I'm thinking in particular her boots um, have kind of a similar um, not quite similar design but but they live in the same world. Um, all the metal stuff, all the line work but then up around her shoulders uh, you know, her two arms are asymmetrical. Right. One of them is yeah. Exactly. I was thinking that myself, asymmetrical design, and it's this is very 80s. A lot of costume designs in the 80s were like that. Yeah. And I always was fascinated by her headpiece, you know, that it, that it covers almost everything, but then she just has this billowing hair, uh, section of hair coming out. Um, I don't know why. I was just, and I, I guess maybe too, because it's red, it kind of stands out and sticks out, so. I was kind of thought that the... Uh... You know, those two side pieces. Of this. I don't, well, you know, leave it to me to pay attention to things that look like sideburns <laughs> on people's faces. But it, it, it's it's kind of reminiscent of the things that the monitor has in the side of his face too. Yeah, I those, give you that. Yeah. Those can be described as sideburns literally. But uh, her helmet kind of makes her look like she's got the same facial structure. Yeah, I guess if you – if I cheat and go back to the uh, – you know, deeper in and look at monitor, you know, there's there's some similarities in the costume. Not enough to make them look like total companions, but I'm thinking specifically around the belt area, that little A of A-line effect thing going on, mm. kind of similar to the monitor's um, skirt. <laughs> <laughs> Call it a tunic. Tunic thing. All right. Yeah, um, preserve his dignity. Okay. <laughs> uh, and also kind of like the collar design, you know, the, the swooping collar going over her bare shoulder. Sort of, you know, he also has kind of like a circlet around him. Um, but it's not enough to be a total comparison. Enough to live in the same world. Right. There's some some fashion genes in common. Yeah. Um. Do you have any thoughts on why you think uh, the Wolfman and Monitor chose um, Solovar in all of this? Huh. It is <sighs> nothing too specific. Um, it, it, it's an interesting choice, as I, well, as I said earlier. But uh, well, I, I guess he's kind of a reflection of one of these. He's a, a time-honored DCU concept taking its origin in the Silver Age. And uh, DC is trying to pay homage to its as much of its uh, own history as possible here. Um, I think they probably knew at this point that the Flash was going to be uh, biting it and uh, that the Flash as a result was not going to be playing – he wasn't going to be physically present for a lot or actively participating in a lot of uh, the story as a whole. So maybe just transferring in uh, some 
secondary element of uh, the, of his part of the DC universe. Of course, by that thinking, you might want to bring in like Elongated Man or uh, or Kid Flash, but instead uh, we get uh, Solovar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's I guess he represents. Wisdom, you know, the, the wisdom that comes with uh, closeness to nature. You know, this is this is the '80s. Uh, maybe he ties into you know, '80s ecological movements, closeness closeness to nature, the lessons that we as humans can learn from you know, the wisdom of the animal kingdom. I just, I, I, I'm definitely pulling things out of my butt at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think the Flash thing was the closest connection that I could make, you know, that they knew that what they were going to do with the Flash. They also knew at this point uh, that the Flash was in the future. And I wondered if part of the reason why you would bring Solovar, of all characters, who's not very powerful in a, in, in a physical sense. No, not indeed. He's, he's not even really a... Of all the characters that uh, Wolfman selected, and there are 15 of them in all, he's the only one that's not uh, like a, a, a combatant type right. character. He's not uh, easily classifiable as hero or villain. He's a, a staunch, uh, steadfast ally of a DCU hero of long standing. so we probably call him a hero for that reason. But he doesn't usually participate in the, uh, the battles between hero and yeah. villain. And I wondered if that was the reason why maybe uh, just kind of like a soft allusion to – uh, him being a surrogate of the Flash, you know, maybe, maybe some because of the technology, maybe he would have been um, one of the characters that could be honest enough, that could understand the situation enough, but and also have some of the knowledge of what Flash would have without actually having Flash there. Now I know you said Kid Flash, but then then it come that speaks to a little bit of nepotism, right? You know why. If Wolfman already wants Cyborg in this, you know, bring, bringing Kid Flash, mm. you know, now you got two new Teen Titans characters on there, and then everybody suddenly says, "Oh, you're just showcasing, you know, those characters." Um, plus, if they knew what they were going to do with Flash, they probably knew what they were going to do with Kid Flash by the end of this as well, mm. um, saving him for later, you know. Yeah. Um, now that I think of it, wasn't Wally having problems with his powers at this point in time too? That is true. Yeah, yeah, he was going through uh, sort of like a self-exile for a while. Um, I like what you said about the whole nature thing, though. Too, I like that. Um, you know, this, the whole scientific aspect. If he is a, a, a being of a higher culture, um, I think it's uh, some of the other things could be, as you said. You know, going to Gorilla City is a very clear Earth One delineation you know if wolfman had to gather characters how do you do it in such a short shorthand way um without having to each time go okay this is earth one and he's blah, blah, blah. you know you can you can do that but you could also do it just by hoping that your readers are um savvy enough to go oh yeah gorilla city flash barry allen earth one got it so i i, I kind of lumped all those things in there mm. try to think of as a as a writer's you know sort of like trying to use and you know yes we totally get that all this could have been they just threw a bunch of names in a hat and they pulled it out <laughs> but it's much more fun to think of it in these kind of terms yeah, I think. to assume that there's a method to the madness and then try to reverse engineer that yeah, yeah that could just be that they wanted a non-human character of some kind in there too Oh yeah, I think I think the first couple selections that they choose are very interesting non 
um, uh, you know, non-traditional choices. You know, they're very they they go across the demographic of not only human, but uh, not only gender, I should say, but humans as well, species as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And within the human species, there's the concept of race. Right. So we've got that kind of diversity uh, coming into play as well. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things. So he says, but who besides the Flash knows we exist? We could probably make a long list of names of who else besides the Flash could knows that Gorilla City's there. Um, Kid Flash being one of them, probably. Mm-hmm. So, did Hal Jordan ever find out? I don't know. Kind of think that at, at some point uh, somebody came up with an alternate origin uh, for uh, for for Gorilla City. In, uh, in putting forth that uh, the Gorilla City actually was a city from the planet Kalor, and uh, they somehow used the energy from a Green Lantern's ring to teleport themselves to Africa years ago. But that uh, – I forget where that story first appeared. It was in something like Super Team Family or one of those you know, secondary 70s uh, DC comics. Uh, fans didn't care for it, and it was – they actually went out of their way to put a note in Who's Who in the Gorilla City entry to say that this is non-canonical and uh, inaccurate and just forget about it. Oh, wow. So I wouldn't be surprised if Hal Jordan at some point did learn of it, but uh, he, his mind might not have retained the knowledge. Hmm. Because remember in Gorilla City, they've got that beacon that broadcasts special waves throughout uh, – you know, just, uh, on uh, the frequency of human brainwaves throughout the world that uh, automatically erases all knowledge of Gorilla City from the minds of anyone who accidentally learns about it except the Flash. I know in uh, one, of, one of the rare few um, um, submissions that I put I – I sent to DC, uh, I was trying to find – uh, I was trying to connect a few characters that had any kind of relation to the origin trope of being powered by a meteor and tying it all into the Promethean giant wall, the wall of um, the new gods of the Promethean giants. Mm-hmm. And that, and that it, like a large chunk, um, oh God, it gets even cri- more crisis and, and deeper than that, that a controller actually was trying to uh, siphon off a chunk of it, and in the process, it it wound up hurtling through time and space. And it was how it was the artifact that powered Captain Comet and Vandal Savage and Mister Mortal, Mortal Man. Yep. And I also thought it could. It was. I think the gorillas from Gorilla City were part of it too. And um, I don't know. It was a few more. I had like a few. Uh, I think. Oh, what's his face? Uh, Super Buffalo? No. What's oh, uh, oh uh, Super, Super Chief? Chief. Yeah, Super Chief. Because I think he has. I think Red Star was also affected. It was like this whole big thing. I was just going to try to connect everybody, uh, but work uh, Animal Man in there maybe. Although Grant Morrison already kind of deconstructed that as yeah. far as it could go. I'd, I'd have to show, but that's a that's a tangent. Um, it's a neat idea though. Yeah. Um. So some of the reason why I point that out, the whole thing about who besides the Flash knows we exist, is because I love I love Wolfman's hy- sense of hyperbole throughout a lot of this stuff. <laughs> um, Harbinger says that the Monitor has seen the birth of this city, so clearly he's been monitoring longer than just a few months, like he said uh, they alluded to earlier in this issue and elsewhere. Um, and. The only other thing – oh, I love that she says 
Come with me. A great adventure awaits. What is she trying to sell him when she says a great adventure awaits? And meanwhile, she's going to say, oh, by the way, your worlds are dying. What kind of adventure is that? I don't know. <laughs> Something out so, of an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel maybe? Yeah, maybe. Trying to maybe. play to her audience or at least playing to her stereotypical conceptions of her audience. Yeah, could be. Krieger, Bundelow. <laughs> so that's what I had for those two pages. Those are my notes. Hmm. All right, so on to the next draftee. Um, do you want me to do this one? Okay, sure. We'll, we'll take turns. Okay, near and dear to my heart here. We have um, we talked about this in the cover about how not only is this multiverse but also dealing with time, and here we are. These, this page and a half shows us that the next character to be um, taken by Harbinger, brought in by, the, by Harbinger, is Dawnstar of the 30th century – Earth, the future of Earth One at this point, thirtieth um, century Metropolis. If you are a fan of Legion of Superheroes, you would probably already had recognized her on the cover and inside the issue as well. And she is making her way um, through the recent to the recently rebuilt Legion headquarters, which is uh, um, just an allusion to something that's been going on in Legion of Superheroes where they, they did get a brand new headquarter because of Computo um, and what was once an orange – Upside down spaceship. Yeah. Well, no, even even between that, that the orange um, – it was like a building. It was like a more of a brick, more you know, sort of like constructing construction material uh, then becomes this metallic silver – very iconic headquarters that the Legion would have throughout the you know most of the eighties and the Baxter run and all that um and where the top of it is actually a spaceship um, <laughs> so cool anyway uh so she is going to, she's she's wondering who has summoned her she feels a telepathic summons she begins to chase a light and that she sees off in the distance and this is where you get a little bit of um you know. Chris Claremont-esque type thought balloons where you get to see what kind of powers that she has. And she says, I'm a tracker. I can follow one pebble spinning through the Mutaran asteroid belt. Um, and the light leads her to suicide slum, slum um, which is a very metropolis kind of thing, even in the future. Uh, she says, despite my powers, I usually avoid this area. And she sees the light. She calls out to it. Nobody answers. So she goes up to uh, – it sort of looks like a storage unit and she taps in some kind of code. I don't know how she would know what the code is. but uh, And out from the very wall itself, very much like what was going on in Gorilla City where Harbinger literally just steps out from a wall, her hand comes through, grabs Dawnstar. She's a little – she's not as um, casual or not, not casual. She, she – the dialogue's different. The personality is different. I need you, Dawnstar. Come with me now. She just grabs, <laughs> grabs her, and Dawnstar vanishes in a puff of light. The tracker from Starhaven vanishes. Hmm. Right. Starhaven being well, kind of like an Indian reservation, except in the form of a planet. Right. Yep. Where uh, Star uh, Dawnstar's people, who are called uh, Amarinds. In the 30th century lingo, that's where they have chose to settle in outer space, and uh, that's where she was born, where she's from. Right. Apparently, if you're 
Those wings right. of hers are a are not uncommon feature in uh, in uh, residents of Starhaven, but uh, yeah. and tracking abilities too. But hers are um, she, she's a, a mutant in that uh, her tracking abilities are even stronger by several factors than like the average Starhavenite. Right. If you're looking at the cover, uh, King Solovar is actually on the back cover, uh, a little bit uh, right above John Stewart Green Lantern, and Dawnstar is on the front cover. Uh, right under the the letter C of Crisis, she's the one with the wings, and she has all the the fringe, you know, evoking a, um, I guess an Indian esque costume there. Yes, by way of the 30th century and outer space. And George Paris, or no, well, no, he didn't design. I shouldn't say that, but he's giving it the extra fringe anyway. <laughs> Was she a Cockrum design? Do you know? Um, you know, uh, I should. But maybe Paul French and Darren Noel might know and all that. Uh, that is a question for the Legion of Substitute Podcasters. Yeah, unfortunately, my that kind of specific Legion stuff is not quite the same as sort of my Titans knowledge. But uh, yes. I remember she first appeared in Superboy number two twenty five or six. Uh, let me take a look here. Uh, here we go. Um. According to this, uh, James Sherman. Okay. All right. Not a penciler whose work I know. Yeah. She's one of the Legionnaires, at least for me, that I feel um, is less Legionnaire than most of the other ones because she she's never really given too much spotlight. Um, she's always just mixed up into Wildfire, the character Wildfire. You know, they have this on-again, off-again romance. Uh-huh. Um, unrequited love kind of thing. Um, she's usually to herself. They, it's not, she didn't really have a lot of personality. It wasn't until later that I think Paul Levitz and Keith Giffen finally took a shine to her and gave her a little bit more of, of stuff to do. So I actually like that they're, that they chose her of all of the Legionnaires. Mm. Forcing her to work with a bunch of characters that she hasn't even had a chance to learn to trust. Anyway, and how long did it take her to warm up to her fellow Legionnaires? Yeah. And here she is yeah. being thrown in with this motley crew that Harbinger's gathering. Yeah, and I, I, I'm feeling you on the, um, you know, the, the aloofness, the distance. Uh, I was sure she didn't have a whole lot of personality and she was kind of on the taciturn side. Well, she's, she's a soarer of the spaceways, you know, so she's, she's used to being by herself out there in the void. So it's understandable her social skills would have suffered a little bit. But, but two, I think maybe she may have fallen prey to certain Native American stereotypes. Mm-hmm. That might have no the mere fact that uh, her superpower is superior tracking ability you know that's talking about a superpower that's kind of keyed to uh, the cultural context of the person uh wielding them yeah but and still I, she's a fantastic visual with nothing else that is, that is very true i think uh you know i do i do i've always liked her because of that and i wonder if um again sort of speaking of okay who can we because the Legion of Superheroes at this time is a very popular book, so I totally understand the Wolfman's choice of wanting a Legionnaire. Um, you know, if you're going to go to the 30th century, uh, of course you're going to focus on the Legion, and using that character is great um, uh, because she doesn't get much spotlight. She is visually appealing. She has a nice design to her, and uh, I think it's um, her power could be very easily explained as, okay, we need a tracker. We need someone who 
can lead these people, you know, maybe if they had to go somewhere. Or, you know, I, I sort of get it. I get, you need I get to, it. say, find a giant tuning fork someplace. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Plus a little added ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I, oh, right. We've yeah. said in earlier uh, episodes of this show, uh, one of Wolfman's uh, key objectives here, you know, the, what he thought he was doing when he set about uh, rebooting DC continuity was to create additional ethnic diversity. Uh, just uh, restart some characters and uh, let them belong to different ethnic groups or have different racial backgrounds than they'd had before. Yeah. Of course, he didn't and- ultimately end up accomplishing that, but uh, at least here – He's able to uh, bring in, say, an American Indian, albeit one from outer space, and and a woman at that to be a part of this uh, away team that the Monitor is putting together. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, just the other thought of, okay, if we're going to showcase the diversity of DC Comics, 50 years of DC Comics, um, why not showcase the true diversity of it? Not, not I'm, I don't even mean diversity in terms of well, I guess I do, maybe, in terms of race, gender, and all that. But, you know, just look, we have talking apes, which is such a DC thing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, we got flying winged women, you know, I, I, from the future. <laughs> so I, I think on that aspect al- alone, I don't know how much in their head they were thinking of, you know, when they, when they rebranded the New 52 and they started that whole madness, um, obviously they had very much had in their minds of creating IPs, intellectual properties. But I don't know if they had that so much so back here. But if they did, maybe they could say, hey, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. Here's the first issue of a big event. Look at all the fun characters we have. They're not all just, uh, you know, blonde white men. <laughs> yes, I Definitely see the truth of that. Yeah. Um, another re- way you can tell that this is the 30th century and this is always a, just a fun DC thing, just like Gorilla City, is in the very top panel on page 15. The Earth is covered with a polymer uh, shield um, that is explained uh, as a way to keep the Earth protected and the atmosphere protected, and and to keep uh, you know the space travel. Keep an, keep an eye on space travel and all that stuff. So when you are seeing her fly through Metropolis and the sky, it's a starry sky, but it's kind of gray. That's because that's the shield that is surrounding the Earth that was part of the Legion of Superhero lore uh, definitely in the 70s. And, and I should say definitely in the 80s. I don't know how far back it went. Maybe maybe 70s. I don't know if it went to 60s. Um, yeah, almost certainly not. But uh... Yeah. Yeah, but thank you for pointing that out, though, Peter, because I would mm-hmm. have missed it completely. And then they eventually would get rid of it during um, – in between the Baxter run and the five years later run where the the, the Earth – where the United Planet suffers a, a mass economic meltdown. And uh, I believe they had to remove the shield because of it. I guess the upkeep, upkeep was too expensive. <laughs> but I love, the, I love the plastic screen. I just – such a great – Legion thing. Yeah, another great Legion thing. You mentioned the new headquarters building there. It's got uh, what looks like a letter L on the top there, which is not actually a Roman letter L, but a letter in the uh, the futuristic Interlac alphabet. And it just it's the one letter of the Interlac alphabet that happens to look almost exactly like uh, its equivalent in the modern day Roman alphabet. Yeah. And by sheer coincidence, it's also the first letter. In, in the uh, name of the group of characters that happen to live in an era where interlac is used. 
Yeah. So L for Legion or Interlac L for Legion, either way. Yep. Um, that was it. The only other thing was, and this is, this is, I could say this every sequence is, um, what a showcase that Perez gets from going from Gorilla City to the 30th century and, and then to the next one, to the World War, World War Two, World War Two, uh, Earth Two, and, you know, just, he gets to really get to play around with settings and, and that's, an amazing feat for, for someone like Perez. You know, he's, you can tell he's a gifted storyteller because of it. No denying. So you want to go to earth two? Oh, sure. Let's go to earth two and, uh, zipping back, uh, you know, from the far future to the, uh, uh, near past, I guess, you know, it's a matter of, uh, 43 years. As of the time of uh, the series' original publication, back to 1942, uh, when uh, the United States has just uh, recently entered uh, the uh, ever-growing conflict of uh, World War II. And uh, what else? We're in the middle of a a war bond rally. Um, How many Golden Age uh, superheroes participated, whether within the text of their stories or in advertisements in uh, the comic books in which uh, Golden Age superheroes appeared, uh, you know, raising funds for war bonds was something that they occupied themselves with. And sure enough, here we have a, a superhero in her civilian guise who is helping out behind the scenes at a, a war bond rally. Uh, and this is uh, Danette Riley, uh, sister of Rod Riley, an actual Golden Age superhero, not originally a DC character. Uh, he... Uh, he was uh, a quality comics character. Uh, he was called Firebrand. He had no superpowers. He was just a, you know, a swashbuckling, two-fisted crime buster in a puffy pink shirt. Um, but uh, his sister uh, managed to acquire uh, flame-based powers. So uh, while her uh, brother Rod is off serving in the armed services during World War II, she has taken on the identity of Firebrand, and she is a, a member of the central cast of the All-Star Squadron series that was being published and going strong by DC at about this time. Um, and here we see uh, Danette Riley, a.k.a. Firebrand, uh, calming down a friend of hers named Kara, who is trying to light a stove to get her cake ready in time. Uh, I guess there's going to be some kind of bake auction later on at this uh, bond rally. Uh, Danette just uh, tells her that uh, she'll take care of everything, shoes Kara away, and then with a grin and a wink, she uses her firepowers to relight the pilot. And then suddenly she discovers that uh, time has frozen around her and Harbinger has appeared in uh, in the kitchen with her, uh, addressing her by her superhero name, Firebrand, we need you. Come with me. Um, and... Uh, she uh, and demands that uh, Harbinger tell her how she knows who she is, and she says, Danette Riley, I am Harbinger, and we need you, repeating herself. Your planet is imperiled. And uh, Danette offers to go and get uh, the rest of the All-Star Squadron, but uh, uh, Harbinger demurs and says, no, Danette, it is you, specifically you I need, or rather it is Firebrand. And uh, Harbinger, with a gesture, uh, puts... Danette Riley into her firebrand costume right away. Um, tells her to uh, come with her and all will be made clear. Danette decides to herself that she's going to just uh, 
but somehow she she trusts Harbinger for reasons she can't define. And then she makes a a period-appropriate crack about clicking her heels together and saying there's no place like home since uh, the Wizard of Oz movie was only three years old as of 1942. Would have been fresh in uh, Danette's mind. Um, Harbinger invites uh, Firebrand to take her hand in a nifty little Sistine Chapel reference there in that panel on page 17. And the two of them disappear, but a sinister silhouetted figure has watched them leave. Dark, sinister eyes widen with interest, and a deep, throaty laugh echoes throughout the room, end quote. And that's all we get of uh, Danette Riley, Firebrand 2. Yeah. All right, now I do have um, a theory about why uh, this particular character was chosen here. Okay. Um, no, so we're, no, we're trying to, as we've already said a couple of times over, we're trying to represent as wide a range of different settings and uh, types of character uh, that uh, that DC has to offer as possible. Uh, so we do have a, uh, one or two characters from the future and one or two also from the past. And uh, the All-Star Squadron series was you know, pretty prominent from DC at this time. And oh, yeah. uh, since it was uh, one of only a, a couple to be set on Earth 2, you know, Infinity, Infinity Inc. being another biggie, in that category, both written and overseen by a writer-editor, you know, ye writer-editor, as he liked to call himself, Roy Thomas, is kind of like uh, DC's um, you know, Earth 2 czar. He was uh, – if you wanted to make – do anything with Earth 2 as a setting or its characters, you kind of had to go through him. So – and as we've – I've said a few times over, I, I really I've, – I've always felt very deeply for, for Roy Thomas for what Crisis did to him because – Earth 2 as a setting and the characters that dwelt thereon were always very near and dear to his heart as a fan of characters – of these characters going back to the Golden Age. You know, talking about uh, you being a crisis kid, he was an actual Golden Age kid. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, one of the first – he was in the vanguard of the first generation of fans of comics who grew up then to create comics. Right. And it was a dream come true for him to use all these old Golden Age heroes that he remembered and tell new stories with them, even coming up with new, quote-unquote, Golden Age characters of his own devising uh, to participate in these adventures with them. And uh, Firebrand is actually an example of that. He created the Danette Riley character. I'm pretty sure that Rod Riley, the uh, quality comics Firebrand, uh, didn't have a sister uh, in his originally published adventures. Um, and so he, uh, you know, on his own initiative, he, he came up with it. Well, in the early issues of All Star Squadron, he introduced a couple of characters that technically, that that were quality comics characters. You know, Phantom Lady was a, she was a major a central member of the All Star Squadron cast in the early issues. Even though she, as far as DC fans knew to that point, should have been an Earth X character. She was a member of the Freedom Fighters, as uh, we were told some time ago that Earth X equaled quality comics Earth. But uh, Roy Thomas introduced the idea that perhaps uh, the Earth-X characters originated on Earth-2. And uh, as when we start talking about crisis crossovers, there are a couple of issues of All-Star Squadron that really dig into that in much more detail, the connection between Earth-2 and Earth-X. But uh, so he took this uh, quality-slash-Earth-X character and established that he had a sister. And uh, when Rod Riley went off to war, she got herself mixed up with some of her brothers, erstwhile crime-fighting allies, ended up getting synthetic uh, – I think she fell into a vat of synthetic lava is how she got her powers. And uh, she gained these uh, heat and flame-based powers and became a member of the team. And um, she's uh, she's based on uh, Roy Thomas's wife, Dan. Dan Thomas, his uh, wife and uh, frequent writing partner actually. So this is a character that means quite a bit to Roy. 
And um, so I can sort of see Thomas choosing her of all the possible Earth 2, All-Star Squadron, World War Two era characters to include in uh, Monitor's original away team. I think perhaps including this specific character was something like a propitiatory gesture to Roy, saying, sorry, we're going to yank Earth 2 out from under you, but at least we're going to give this character that you created based on your wife and that you love so much a little extra play here before we uh, go ahead and do that to you. Yeah. I also like the notion, I thought, I thought, I th- and you may have, um, may have been implying that of maybe they did go to these people and say, "Hey, Paul Levitz, give me a Legionnaire to put in the first ep- ep- issue." Hey, Roy Thomas, give me a All Star Squadron. Um, I wonder how much of that actually happened too, especially with Roy Thomas, because he was, as you say, said, the keeper of the keys of Earth Two at this point. Yeah. And despite you know what his, his seeing the writing on the wall, I have heard from a couple of different sources that uh, Roy Thomas did everything he could to uh, collaborate and just and to really pull his weight and do his part with uh, bringing this crisis event together. And he he gave them reams of suggestions for what he'd like to see happen, you know, short of it surviving with Earth Two and uh, its its denizens. Yeah. So yeah, I could. Uh, you're probably right, Peter. They probably did uh, put a call out to various uh, writers or editors and asking them, okay, which which characters would you like to give us to use in such and such a way? Yeah, especially because you you know, as you said, the All Star Squadron was also a very popular book. Maybe not in terms of like you know what New Teen Titans and Legion of superheroes, but probably not. Yeah, yeah, but definitely it was a uh, it was a. a a decent series for readers and, and because it was the only connection to earth too. And, and you know how think of its place in history as being specifically on an, uh, another earth, you know, DC actually publishing a book that is not on the, uh, you know, the main DC earth um, and how, um, you know, you just read it. You weren't confused by it. You just picked it up and said, yeah, it's Earth 2. You know, I mean, it's kind of going on now. You know, there there is an Earth 2 book, you know, that's going to be canceled soon. But um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's that's kind of unique. You know, I, I think that's cool. We're used to having books set in Wild West, set in the future, set in, um, you know, uh, sword and sorcery times. Well, here's a whole other one on another Earth. Uh, um, and, have you know, I've, I've just over the past like two years have been going through the all-star squadron series from issue one. Um, um, and it is, it is a, it is a tour de force through, like you said, going through golden age stories, but mixing in new concepts that could fit right in. And Roy Thomas explaining this and explaining that and connecting this little weird continuity glitch and making it work. You know, it's just, it's great. I mean, the, the hysterical thing is, I'm up to issues like somewhere in the 30s, I think. Oh, so you're um, right near the first uh, Freedom Fighter story, then? Um, past that one, that one, um, that one's like around 29, 30, 31, 32, somewhere around there. I'm in the one where they're up against Captain the, the Marvel family. Oh, and um, actually, sort of after with Amazing Man, and there's like a, a, a the American, oh, the something. real American, right? The, yeah, the, the real Android. American. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so, that's the, the Monitor appearance. Oh, there you go. So I'm somewhere around there, and the whole series still has not moved more than two months past the Pearl Harbor attack, I think. Oh, or, yeah. He had big long-term plans for this Ooh. series. Roy Thomas did. Yes, he did. But one of the things 
um, but while I'm keeping notes on that series and I need to get back to it, is that Firebrand is actually a major character in that book mm-hmm. for all the reasons that you said. Um, even though it's Liberty Bell that sort of becomes the the new chairperson for the team, um, fi- the, the All-Star Squadron book actually really did have a core central core cast of characters, which Firebrand was one of. And um, – and then it and then it got larger and larger and and you know and then it would uh, new characters would come in and out and then mm. the JSA would take over blah blah blah. Yeah, well, but Roy was in kind of a rush for a while there. I think you know, he knew yeah. that he only had so many issues left to him to do things with Earth Two and All Star Squadron, so he started throwing in more and more stuff, and that's yeah. probably why things started to get congested and the cast got bigger and bigger. Yeah, but Firebrand definitely is a major major piece and. Uh, um, at the time, it probably didn't dawn on me that that you know using her in this book made sense that in that way. In fact, I think when I was reading it, both All Star Squadron and this, I probably did not know that she wasn't a Golden Age character. Just like you said, that she was specifically created, excuse me, for the series. Um, I didn't know that. You know, I just assumed, um, very much like you know, like Commander Steel or. Uh, um, I don't know. Amazing, Amazing man. Amazing. Well, that one I you could sort of get the feel for, but yeah, like you know those those characters. I guess even freedom fighters to a degree, right? Like, uh, oh yeah, there, there was no golden age team called the freedom fighters. They, they, yeah. they were all legit golden age characters, but they had never come together as a team during the golden age. Right, right. So it was kind of fun to when that bit of knowledge finally does come out, you know. But at this time, I start, reading Crisis back in eighty whatever. I definitely was like just. Okay, there she is. Yeah, I get it. Um, one of the other reasons why I think could potentially be a reason why she was chosen, um, and it only really starts to make sense when you see who else is in the in the the, the grouping, is there there is kind of a elemental thing going on. We have one character, Dawnstar. If you want to look at Dawnstar being um, about air. Uh, you could have Firebrand being about fire, and um, eventually Killer Frost. Uh, you know, if you want to think of like water or ice or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it, this is in no way is this have does this have any evidence, but it's kind of fun to sort of think. All right, we're covering a lot of the base superhero power tropes of of elemental stuff and mind stuff, and you'll see. You know, as we get through it, you mm-hmm. know, there, I think there could be something to that as well. If uh, um, that I don't think Wolfman is talking about, but I'm yeah. as a reader, I'm going through and pointing it out. Yeah, I agree. It is fun to do that. Yeah. Yes. When we get down to the the scenes where these characters are actually going into action and being used, you know, it's uh, I don't think they're running up against uh, situations that uh, their powers are specifically uh, tailored to solving. They're all just kind of just uh, pitching into the melee. Yeah. So yeah, we'd, if there was any. Uh, Particular logic of that kind, they're being they're being chosen for these missions. You know, it's it's not really evident when you get down to reading them, yeah. doing what the monitor chose them to do. Yeah. Um, the only other note I have is that um, the Firebrand character might be a little more open minded than, say, a Liberty Bell or even Hawkman. Um, so I can again another sort of speaks to her character of why she was chosen. Um, someone else might try too hard to bring in the rest of the JSA or or doubt or have doubts or want to just go to war right away, whereas mm. Firebrand is a little more delicate 
uh, sort of counter to her name, right? Firebrand. Right, where she's just kind of brash, headstrong, impulsive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, she seems to be fairly level-headed and uh, perhaps a person of faith too. But then, then again, this is why the Monitor and Lila spent all those months uh, handing out high-tech weaponry to supervillains and gangsters and such just so they could get a chance to see what the heroes that go up against those villains and gangsters are made of. Perhaps that's when they determined that Firebrand would be you know, more receptive to uh, the summoning than some other members of the group would be. That's a good point, Peter. And then, of course, we get our first real look at something, some kind of adversary. Yes. A silhouette with a very specific profile. Mm-hmm. Notice that uh, protruding upper brow. All right. Anything else on that sequence? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Shall we go on and go on to the next one? All right. Another recruit, another Earth. Yeah. Um, an unspecified Earth this time. Yes, yes. Very interesting to note. Yeah. Um, and this one has a feel, if you sort of look at the technology and the buildings and – um, the gun, the art, the weapons, it feels present, present tense. There's a hostage situation going on on a roof and um, springing down from the heavens. Um, the villains turn around and they recognize the person. It's the Blue Beetle. And he says in a very sort of metatextual way, ah, isn't recognition grand? Considering this is his first appearance outside of the cover in a well, no. Did Husu come out already? I, I don't remember if uh, hmm. Husu ah. number three was out. Okay. Oh wait, I have it here. Husu three cut came out the month after Crisis One. So okay, good. So yeah, this is. Well, I, I'd always thought of this as his first appearance in a DC comic. So yeah, glad Who's Who of all things isn't giving us the lie on that. So uh, he comes down and he lays the smackdown in a very Spider-Man esque way, um, and. Uh, it's really just a way to introduce, I think, readers to this character. Um, he'll have an obvious, um, a more, he'll have more of an importance to the series after this first issue. Um, but because the 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 Earth is unnamed at this point, um, they, there's almost even I don't even know if they in their minds yet really had an idea of what Earth he was going to be from. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's dialogue later on that sort of suggests that they did not have that squared away yet. Um, I had the same thought, Peter. Yeah. Um, but yet it's another person that um, um, Harbinger comes to. Um, she's floating in the air as he's trying to, uh, you know, deal with these ho- with one of the hostage takers. And she says, same thing. I'm here, Blue Beetle, and I need you. Blue Beetle, come with me, please. I'm here, Blue Beetle. And I need you. They say Blue Beetle a lot in the sequence so that <laughs> new DC readers can – oh, right, Blue Beetle. I got it. The alliteration. I got it. I'm square. Um, your questions will be answered later. Please come with me. And he says, boy, this lady take, he thinks this, she takes no for an answer. She doesn't take no for an answer. Why not? It's a lousy night, night for TV anyway. Um, Wolfman really channeling a lot of his Spider-Man dialogue here, I think, in this uh, – when he used to write Amazing Spider-Man. So – we are introduced to Blue Beetle, and he is the third, the fourth uh, character, the first male uh, to be, well, outside of Solovar, but uh, to be taken by Harbinger. 
Um, I do like the the introduction. I, I I really think it is Wolfman saying, "Okay, we haven't seen this character since uh, you know whenever the action heroes of Charlton were out." It's the Blue Beetle, isn't recognition grand? And here I thought I'd be forgotten after all this time. Well, welcome to the DC universe, Ted Cord. Um, Resounding welcome. Yeah. Right, so we're introduced to. Um... Well, the first scene we see on this Earth, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that they didn't go out of their way to say which Earth it's on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even say that it's not on Earth too. Doesn't say that they're jumping from one Earth to a different Earth. But uh, it is, as you said, at least uh, pretty clearly set uh, more or less in the present, just based on the design of the guns that the and the clothes that the uh, uh, terrorists or hostage keepers are wearing. Um, Ted Cord makes a couple of different references to TV, including going home and watching PBS. <laughs> uh, bottom of page 17, uh, we get a little cameo from Detective Carp. Um, I had always kind of assumed that he was a part of Blue Beetle's supporting cast back in the Charlton Silver Age, but apparently he was introduced in uh, Charlton Portfolio, which is one of a couple of different uh, – like a Charlton fiction fanzine type things that were that were going on, and well, during the the years when Charlton was defunct and uh, their action heroes were out of print. Huh. So this was not Detective Carp's first appearance, although it certainly was his first appearance in a DC comic, just as it is for Ted Cord. Right. And we're introduced to uh, the Bug too. Yes. And Beetle actually says, "Bug, lower me a bit." I don't know if he's doing that because the bug uh, responds to vocal commands or if he, uh, Mark Wolfman just wanted to let the readers know that that's the name of the uh, insect-shaped uh, hovercraft that the beetle uses. Certainly, you know, I know there's a lot of fans of Blue Beetle from the Justice League Bwahaha era. Um, not that I'm the, the biggest Blue Beetle fan, but certainly you can't go through reading this issue, at least, you know, in, in my in sort of my experience with this issue and my experience with DC Comics at the point, you know, being what maybe a reader of DC Comics for the past, uh, I don't know, four years since uh, – or three or four years or whatever, um, it certainly puts him on the radar though. And, you know, to go from Crisis to his series, you know, his Len Wein, Paul Cullen's – Paris Cullen's. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, which was so good and so popular and so much fun. And then, of course, Legends and then Justice League. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was this was it. For those of us reading at this time, this was, oh, wow, look at this character. If we didn't have prior knowledge, I should say. You know, for those – the reason I, I keep referencing Crisis Kid is not so much of not, – not, not really necessarily even like long-time readers, but those of us with just enough knowledge of DC Universe and comics to sort of – be okay with the craziness of crisis and 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 having it totally obliterate what we knew um because we hadn't invested not even a decade yet you know not even five years if you want to look at it you know um so i certainly didn't know who blue beetle was and and this was a fun introduction yeah, the image that always stuck with me 
Um, and, and this is from the perspective of someone who was uh, a post-crisis kid and didn't start reading comics until the 90s. Uh, was, uh, I remember reading this issue of uh, Crisis Number 1 you know, the afternoon that I first got it. Uh, at that comic show out at the Sheraton. And uh, I was struck by the shape of uh, Blue Beetle's goggles because I, I'd seen a few images of the Blue Beetle. Uh, I may even have read a couple of stories uh, with him in them. Um, but uh, they were published later when he had uh, gotten those uh, sort of uh, convex uh, circular lenses uh, in, in the goggles in his mask. Mm-hmm. Here we've got the triangular uh, flat lenses. You know, there's that neat panel at the top of page 19 where he's seeing Harbinger and there, she, her face is reflected in them. Mm. It just kind of looked uh, just as strikingly old-fashioned to me, I guess. But then again, this is pre-crisis Blue Beetle. Right, right. Um, any thoughts on why why Blue Beetle? Oh, as opposed to like Captain Atom or? Yeah, or just, or you know, I th- I think that. Yeah, or, or whatever you whatever you're thinking of, uh, you know, why this character? No, yeah, just a fun, rough and tumble. Well, you've already said that uh, Wolfman is comfortable writing this kind of character because he's written Spider-Man, and he's kind of a he's a good character for reader ID, I guess you could say. He's he likes Spider-Man himself. He you know he's very intelligent. He's uh, scientifically gifted, but he's still kind of an everyman and uh, used to the idea of the the sensation of being out of his depth. So um, you can see how Wolfman would think that would be appealing to readers to have uh, someone who's a little confused by what's going on, who's used to just uh, brawling in an alley and fighting you know, just a criminal gunmen like the ones he's going up against in this sequence and uh, throwing him into the middle of this big uh, cosmic conflagration. He's a, a good uh, POV thing, something that uh, uh, who's, who's – uh, Point of view the reader could identify with, and yeah. and, and Wolfman too, and he might be able to inject some humor into the proceedings too. Right, Corbin's yeah. always good at that. And I would think someone like Wolfman, you know, knowing what he does with Titans, you know, having someone like Captain Adam might feel a little too. We're already in a cosmic book, you know, a sort of bigger than life book. So why have Captain Adam in there when you can have someone who's a little bit more of the everyman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I want to – this – I don't know if this is because I'm also – we're also living in the world of post-Watchmen or um, I'm trying a little too hard to dig a little, to find little clues. But I have to say this about Blue, this sequence and also keeping in mind, you know, we just went from a gorilla to uh, a winged, beautiful Pocahontas alien to <laughs> – to you know, not your usual Earth Two representative. Um, let's just listen to some of his dialogue here. My, what big guns you boys have! Bet you they make you feel like men. Well, let's do something really manly, like a good old-fashioned fist fight. Uh, here I was, all ready for a night out with the guys. Um, I'll go home and watch PBS. No way, handsome! You're not escaping. Was Wolfman trying to – was he <laughs> trying to push a notion of maybe oh, – He's trying to queer the Blue Beetle. Is that what you're saying? Maybe. Maybe for diversity and just – I don't know. No. I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's not what his intention was. But I just thought that was interesting. And the reason why I say sort of you know post-Watchmen is because uh, you know this whole psychological thing, notion of 
people putting up cost, fancy costumes to go out and beat up men. You know, mm. that was one of the characters in yeah. Watchmen. Or, sort you know. of a homoerotic uh, fetish. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was interesting. And it, but I, but it is something that is very Spider-Man like. I know that he has done that all the time. Um, you know, or even if you want to go even crazier than that, it's something very Bugs Bunny esque. You know, oh, definitely. Yeah, and you know how much time Bugs Bunny spent in a dress. <laughs> so I just made a point of it because it hit me upon reading it this time. They just sort of stuck out, and I went, "Wait a minute, am I really seeing this?" Okay, now it's it's it is what it is. Yeah, interesting point to consider. <laughs> like, like I think I agree with you, Peter, that you're. Digging a little too deeply. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I know. I don't want anybody sort of, you know, getting uh, like, oh, what do you say? No, no. I'm just. It's these little things. You just when you pull the book away and you kind of go, oh, okay. Fun stuff to think about. Yeah. And, and like you said, Wolfman's trying to pull together as diverse a group as he can. Yeah. Um. I guess we can – well, we can dig in a – do you want to go to the next one or uh, – it's only half a page though. We're, well, we're, yeah, but so, so we, we jump to one location briefly, then we jump someplace else, and then we jump back to that location. Yeah, well, why don't you do – because you're, you're a Psycho Pirate fan, so I think you okay, should well, – Well, I'll cover the half page with uh, – we're okay. trying to do this in order. So I'll yep. cover the half page where uh, uh, Harbinger goes back 45,000 years ago. When the world was young, though hardly innocent. She's thinking to herself, where is Arion? So we know exactly which character she's come back to acquire. The Monitor will be furious if I cannot find him in time. Although one wonders uh, how relevant the concept of finding something in time is to someone who can travel through time, you know? What kind of clock is she up against if she can just, like, zip back to monitor satellite two seconds after she left? Anyway, she's uh, zipping along. Um, she's in uh, the... Uh, antediluvian Atlantis, approximately. She's flying through glaciers and ice flows, and uh, she's worrying to herself that she's going to be late, late for a very important date, and she'll have no excuse for her failure if she doesn't find Arion in time. And then a flying, shadowy shape appears behind her. It appears to be wearing a cape. She doesn't realize that she's being observed until it's too late. Quote, and when she at last realizes her plight... What? No, not you! <laughs> and the shadow zips into her body, and uh, and afterwards she just uh, keeps on flying as usual. But then we get an extreme close-up of her face at the bottom of page 19 there on the right-hand side. Her eyes have been completely blacked out, which shows us that the shadowy shape with the cape has apparently uh, possessed her. Right. She's also pale, and her headgear has, is now yellow. But that's just because the process, my printing process is effed up in this page. Wow. Yeah, her headgear doesn't look yellow to me. Oh yeah, this whole page, this whole the two two thirds of the page from from the edge into the closer to the middle of this page nineteen, everybody's skin tone is this almost the same page color as the page itself. Hmm. Okay, well I can see the skin tone being a little yellow, but her her helmet, her headdress, whatever you want to call it, that's in my copy it's pretty clearly red. Oh wow. But yeah, this is <laughs> it's, it's the vagaries of the coloring processes of the eighties. No, speaking of which, um, yeah, the uh, oh, second like panel in from the left on the bottom there, um, when uh, Harbinger is possessed by the shadowy shape, uh, which she apparently recognizes, um, that is done in uh, a process that uh, we now know, thanks to uh, listener uh, Brian 
Philbin, is known as uh, flexography, the flexographic process. Uh, he chimed in on the Crisis Tapes talkback thread to give us uh, some extensive notes about it, and for which we thank him profusely. Uh, I'm going to quote them now, actually. On the flexographic process, a few notes. I was in college – well, this is Brian talking here. I was in college when this came out and had been a comics enthusiast for 15 years at this point and reading for 19. I was so looking forward to this issue, and the flexographic nearly killed the enjoyment for me when I got the first issue home from the comic shop. Anyway, Crisis was not the first title to use this process. That dubious distinction belonged to Spanner's Galaxy, which came out a few months before. To clarify, the process itself was called flexographic, but the paper it was printed on was Mando paper. No reflective sheen to it, which was a step below Baxter, which is what covers were, and essentially most current comics are. Flexographic referred to the printing plates, which were of a rubbery type of material instead of the traditional aluminum. They wore out quickly, too. Not something you really want when you're pressing hundreds of thousands of copies. DC hailed it as the next step in comics technology, and there was a considerable amount of fanfare surrounding it before a single issue printed by it has appeared on the rack. The process used a water-based ink rather than oil-based. Truly, it brought brighter, more vivid colors to the product, but the result wasn't nearly as spectacular as it had been in the test runs. Further on in the print run, water-based ink also stopped sticking as well as the oil-based. In conjunction with the wear of the plates, well, you saw what happened. As you both mentioned, the weakness of separations became far more apparent in this process, particularly registration problems, and sometimes entire objects were missing from the page. Thankfully, DC discarded it shortly after the first issue had been printed. So, some comments on 80s coloring there. Thank you very much, Brian Philbin, for that. I even have a, a, a very faint red line going from the top of the page to the bottom of the page on my issue. I don't know why I never replaced this. Like I knew it was bungled, and I knew that other copies were bungled as well. But I don't know why I didn't just try to like go. You know, I certainly saw Crisis Number One in back issue bins oh, all my life, plenty of times, I'm sure. Yeah, so I, you know, I sort of wondered why I never went. Oh, let me just get a few other copies. Maybe one of them will have a half decent printing. Are you using the same copy you bought uh, like off the the rack back in the same copy? It even has um, on the cover. Um, where Superman's cape is, um, I think a, a, a magic marker or something fell on it. So <laughs> it is the same. These crisis issues I've had with me since since the shelf, and they they're they're still great condition considering how much I've read it. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah, mine's pretty good too, except uh, a lot of visible thumbprints. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've cradled this in my sweaty little hands many times. Um, right. I guess we'll talk about Arion when we actually get to him. So yeah, Arion, maybe a little more about what happened to Harbinger too. But yeah, yeah let's let's move on then to page twenty. Okay. Um, a little caption tells us that we're back on Earth two in the present, not not in nineteen forty two this time, but in nineteen eighty four eighty five. Harbinger is speaking. He is in here. Firebrand confined to that institution. His powers have driven him quite mad. Stay behind. It is best if I secure him alone. And then we go into an interior shot of uh, a lone figure, straight-jacketed, uh, crammed himself into a corner of a you know, high-ceilinged padded room. And uh, he's uh, muttering to himself, Crazy? You're crazy to say I am. I'm as sane as any man. But you know what all those emotions did to me? They gave me headaches. I guess I wasn't as good as Halstead was. 
And uh, then Harbinger shows up in the bottom of uh, that panel all the way to the right-hand side of the top row of page 20. And she addresses him by name, Roger Hyden. The psycho-pirate's powers are needed to help save the universe. And uh, Roger Hyden, the second psycho-pirate, tries to blow Harbinger off, insisting that uh, she'd be better served trying to find Halstead, namely Charlie Halstead, who was the original psycho-pirate. Um, claiming that he was, uh, quote, better than me. So uh, Haydn thinks that Halstead was a better psycho pirate than he had been. He knew how to handle all those emotions. And calmly, Harbinger tells him that Halstead is dead and that it is he that she wants. Uh, Haydn insists that he just wants to be left alone. Um, but then Har- well, Harbinger, uh, well, her uh, little you know, gem or lodestone or whatever that is on her brow flares and glows and you know she's uh, using her powers to calm him or something but uh, that uh, Haydn remains uh, recalcitrant does not want to come along doesn't want to have those headaches the pains that his powers had given him he whines that she doesn't know what it's like how uh, the um, the psychic backlash that he gets from manipulating other people's emotions using his magical Medusa mask and then uh, Harbinger produces said Medusa mask and then in a neat little sequence of panels at the top of t- page 21, Harbinger telekinetically places the mask on his face, tells him that they have one last visit uh, where his powers will come in handy. Apparently she needs the Psycho Pirate's powers to uh, aid in the recruitment of uh, this uh, last acquisition. And uh, the, the mask goes on Hyden's face. He finally stops whining, flash of light, and uh, Harbinger... Psycho Pirate and apparently Firebrand too, even though she, Firebrand herself, doesn't physically appear anywhere in this little two-page ditty. Uh, she has to be along because Harbinger was talking to them, to her, and they're all gone. And uh, we'll see where they went a couple of pages uh, hence. So now we have got a, um, a resident of modern-day Earth 2 coming along for the ride. And a villain. Yes, true. The first... Uh, First of that uh, ethical orientation that we've encountered so far. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting you say Hayden. I, I, I was always pronouncing it as Roger Hayden. Well, <laughs> comics aren't audio, so I guess we can, yeah. we can hear it however we want. But I, I just – I've always pronounced it uh, like, like the composer, I suppose. Oh, is that the same spelling? I, I, didn't uh, I think the composer Hayden omits the E. I think it's H-A-Y-D-N. Okay. But yeah, I, I I say Hayden, but you okay. you say Hayden, I say you say Hayden, I Hayden. say Hayden. Let's, Let's call the whole up. thing off. <laughs> um, well, go ahead. You 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 like Psycho Pirate? You have uh, what do you have on this? Uh, okay, um, stuff as well. I don't have many uh, thesis readings lined up for uh, this episode, but I do have one for Psycho Pirate. Okay. Okay. Originally a petty criminal who gained the power to control emotions from a magic mask, the man who became the psycho pirate donned a red and black harlequin suit and embarked on a life of supercrime until his powers began to overwhelm him and drive him insane. In Crisis on Infinite Earths, he is a figure of abjection, appearing alternately as a tormented addict, a megalomaniacal psychic vampire, and a sniveling toadying coward. The Psycho Pirate's importance to Crisis on Infinite Earths cannot be overstated. Indeed, 20 years later, he is now remembered as a living symbol of the Crisis series and the manifold changes it brought about. 
Mythologically speaking, and here's where I dip into my uh, undergraduate thesis research, he is a trickster figure, an archetypal stock character in myths who represents liminality, marginality, disorder, transgression, and the revelation of unpleasant truths. According to Harold Schechter, one of the writers who I quote in the thesis here, the trickster is a being who is happiest when he is creating chaos, disturbing the peace, and who symbolizes primitive instinctual forces, e.g. emotions, with great potential for destruction. Often, tricksters act as demiurges, playful innovators and bricolures with the godlike power to shape reality and to facilitate the formation and or destruction of worlds. Examples can be found in many Native American folklore traditions and in the Norse god Loki, who played a major role in the apocalyptic saga of Ragnarok. The psychopirate has always been a liminal figure in that he is a link between eras, having first appeared in the Silver Age of comics as a new villain to fight old, recently resurrected superhero characters from the Golden Age. Since Crisis on Infinite Earths is also a liminal phenomenon designed to facilitate a historical transition, the use of the similarly liminal psychopirate as an iconic character in the Crisis text is appropriate. As a trickster demiurge, he shapes the subjective reality of people's emotions, tricking them into feeling what he wants them to feel, a skill he employs to sow global chaos for the anti-monitor. However, since his power depends on his modeling emotions on his own face before he can inflict them on others, and since using his power subjects him to a painful psychic backlash, he must always be the first victim of his own tricks. The psychopirate is a personification of the emotional cost of wars and disasters. The text repeatedly goes out of its way to portray the emotional responses of the everyday residents of the DC universe and to show the hero characters in unfamiliar attitudes of fear, grief, doubt, despair, and desperate hope, all emotions that the heroes rarely experienced within the generic security of the old Oniric climate, which is a whole different concept. Umberto Eco came up with that idea to explain the seeming cyclicality and self-repetitiveness of the superhero story formula. He was basing that on a bunch of old Superman comics that he'd read. And uh, so you could generalize the Oniric climate. It was just like stagnation, basically. It was the idea that uh, DC Comics followed a certain narrative formula and all, all of its characters were stuck in a rut, a nice, safe, predictable rut. And Crisis was meant to jar the characters and their universe out of that. And uh, so... Uh, the events of the crisis triggered emotions in them that they had forgotten they were able to have. Emotion is one of the main themes of Crisis on Infinite Earths. The devastation in the story is framed as a state of mind as much as a physical occurrence. In the words of the Monitor, in an issue after issue one, of course, the menace we deal with is one of emotion. And the series itself was conceived in anticipation of the emotions of DC fans, serving as an expressive catharsis and a meaningful transition for them. And the character of the psychopirate is crucial to the expression of that theme. So there we are. Those are the thoughts that I had in the thesis about uh, psychopirate. And uh, the little bit we see of him in this first issue doesn't really bear that out in and of itself. But yeah, it's the lo- it's the long game on this one because I in my no- I'm glad you you read that because um, I have here in my notes I said okay so psychopirate is basically going to be. And I, I, I chose this word, but it's not right. I said, is it the patsy? What is he? I said, it's got to be another word for the character that is torn between all sides, is not really truly responsible for some of his actions, and yet is mostly responsible for others. And he's used, he's abused, and then is the character that suffers the most because of it by the end. Um, you know, all of those questions basically just summed up in everything you just said. I like that notion of the trickster 
um, you know, there's a lot of characters like this in a lot of literature of like, he's not, he's not the main villain. He's the villain's main villain's sidekick or henchman or main henchman. And usually something always bad happens to that character. He's the one that you sort of treat. He's sort of foppish in a way. You kind of don't think he's a necessary evil or, or powerful, but yet he always tends to do something that turns the story for, for whether it was intentional or not, you know? And I think he, I think you're, you're obviously from this first issue, we don't know that that's what's going to happen, but we, we eventually get that sort of notion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that was great. That was great that you read that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a couple of things here. I like um, visually talk about some Perez stuff. Um, Harbinger zooming in yeah. is very reminiscent to the back cover mm. of those lines, you know, the line zooming away from her mm. and then this one zooming to her. I took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Um, um, I also like her physicality. She's not showing a lot of power here except for that one panel. She's actually kind of very human in the way that she looks at um, the psycho pirate on that um, one, two, three, four, five, sixth panel there, uh, or the way she bends down to touch him and comfort him and her hand on his back. You know, this is a, it's an interesting new sort of personality to this, to this character um, being able to read. It almost is like, you know, is, is the Harbinger, are the Harbinger personalities, showing up in a manner that they need to present themselves to that character because of how they are. Right. Just you know? uh, tailoring their uh, demeanor and their behavior toward each target. Yeah. Um, yeah like with Dawnstar, she just uh, skips all the formalities and just reaches right out of a wall and grabs her. Takes a well, direct and, approach. And plays to her powers, right? Like just by being a light, like having having to have Dawnstar track her, chase her, you know? Hmm. Um, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, you could almost even look at the way she shows up to Solovar just by going through a wall, which is something that, you know, I know you said that they have like some kind of force field. Like could they – would they bang into the force field? Do they walk through it? You know, like I don't know. That's kind of reaching. But um, yeah, there's something to, to be said about the way she approaches all these characters. It's really interesting. Um, and you mentioned the visual on the top of page 21, the floating Medusa mask as it transitions sequentially to house, um, Hayden's face is, um, so much fun. Paris is, you know, come on, it's Paris. Although there's something also kind of unique, interesting about it going past Harbinger and like splitting Harbinger's face and very focused on her eyes and. Um, she has very cat-like eyes and the mask having no eyes, no features, but, um, yeah, I like that sequence a lot. Yeah, it's almost Kubrickian, don't you think? Yeah. Um, who do you think Roger's talking to? Uh, really hadn't, uh, hmm. Uh, he could be aware of the Harbinger's coming, I suppose. I always just kind of assumed that he was uh, talking to himself. Yeah, I, I have no answer. I just wondered if you did. I just – I think it's, you know – is this the first time we're seeing him like this or have we – is this a usual status quo for him that he's always in a psych ward somewhere? I think he was driven insane uh, in his last appearance prior to this. 
I seem to recall he had a run-in with uh, Infinity Inc. Um, I don't know. I'm looking at my uh, Crisis Index now. It says here he was last seen in All-Star Squadron Annual Number 2. So, yeah, he, Which... he was not always insane. No, he'd, he'd, had, he'd been a member of uh, the Ultra-Humanites uh, version of the Secret Society of Supervillains. Right. Um, that All-Star Annual 2 does feature the Infinity Inc. That's the end of that. Oh, slot. okay. So I, I, I did not remember a wrong in that case. Um, yeah, so he, yeah, he, he was not always uh, caused such pain by the use of his powers. Um, I, I might mention in passing here that uh, you know, a, a point I made in a footnote to my thesis, um, a footnote to that passage of text I read was that uh, he – arguably the Psycho Pirate could be considered the first new Earth 2 character introduced in the Silver Age. Uh, I think to, to that point, all we'd seen were uh, characters who had actually appeared in uh, Golden Age comics, uh, and th- those were uh, considered the, uh, the 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 official denizens, the citizenry of Earth Two. But here we have a, a new character, uh, albeit a new character assuming a mantle passed on from an existing Golden Age character. That, that's the Halstead he's talking about, Charlie Halstead, who had been a, a newspaper employee who adopted the identity of the Psycho Pirate to get revenge on his boss. And he he just committed crimes that were emotion themed. I don't think he ever actually had any powers to speak of. Hmm. Um, but uh, then, in that issue of Showcase, uh, teaming up uh, Our Man and Doctor Fate, uh, that was Psycho Pirate's first appearance. I think it was number sixty-five. I should look at the actual footnote I'm talking about here. Uh, Psycho Pirate. Showcase fifty-six. Fifty-six. Okay. Which was published in 1965. Okay, yeah, I found it. Yep. Yeah, he has the distinction of being one of the first new characters to be explicitly identified as a native of Earth 2. So there you go. He's kind of like a, a link to the past, a bridge between past and present. Interesting. Yep. So that's uh, so. I guess this Halstead guy, uh, the, the original Psycho Pirate, he fought the JSA a, a couple of times, not not just the once, but uh, um, but then. Uh, he passed on uh, knowledge of this uh, this group of magic masks, uh, and originally there was more than one mask. Uh, and then uh, Hayden Hayden went ahead and uh, combined them all into a single mask. Um, but it was Halstead that let him know about their existence, and then Hayden uh, took the ball from there and uh, gained his emotion-controlling powers and used them to fight Our Man and Doctor Fate back there in 1965. And and now here he is. Still has those powers, but he doesn't have the sanity that uh, allowed him to make effective use of them. Because uh-huh. he's he hates the pain that these emotions give him, but he's also kind of an addictive personality. And uh, and as you'll see here, he's he's kind of seen as a figure of pathos in his first appearance in the Crisis series. But he very quickly, you know, develops a taste for it, and he he becomes kind of like the psychic vampire psycho pirate he he just he starts playing with people's emotions he gets kind of a, a high off of it and he doesn't want to stop i had to uh i enjoyed what you said about you know the the emotional aspect of this event um and and for those people who don't know you know we lose the psycho pirate in um infinite crisis the the sort of thematic sequel to this and it would be it would have been really interesting to have a psycho pirate Within a post uh, emotional spectrum DC universe, you know, with the whole Jeff Johns Rainbow Lanterns, um, I would have oh, loved. Yeah. 
I would love to see what that meant and how he would have been involved in. And I think he was right, like as a Black Lantern. I do think he did show up a couple times oh, here and there. Yes, I'm. I'm, I'm sure that he did. Johns yeah. would have been able to leave that alone. Yeah. And like if he brought back like people like Earth Two Superman and Harbinger and such, then yeah, he, there's no way he would have been able to resist bringing in a Black Lantern psycho pirate. And just to see visually how that would have been translated now, you know, with his Medusa mask and emotions, and now we have a rainbow spectrum, and that would have been really cool. So uh, we'll chalk that up to just a, a lost opportunity. But yeah, uh, thing is, though, after Crisis, Psycho Pirate became less that guy who manipulates emotions and more that Crisis guy. Yeah, <laughs> like I said, he's in my little thesis passage there. He's like the living embodiment of the crisis now. He—that's he, what he right. symbolizes. He symbolizes the forbidden lore of crisis. You know, the the awful trick that was played on all of DC Comics reality and the people who've been following it. There's that great Brian Bolin cover from Animal Man, from Morrison's Animal Man run, where where literally comics are pouring out of his eyes. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I know just the image you mean. Yeah, I love that. And one of them is that issue of Showcase, I believe. Oh, there you go. Um, uh, I so he says Halstead is, or she says Halstead is dead, and, and um, there is kind of a crisis, um, uh, not equation, but there is a formula to who the monitor can and can't pick and choose, and it. I'm fairly certain this is a hundred percent across the board, but maybe there might be one or two exceptions that um, if. A character is dead in DC Comics publishing history, chronology, um, then they do not show up. So even though Batman of Earth 2 is is seen in the title All-Star Squadron, even as recently as right before when this issue came out, um, because he was technically dead in publishing continuity – um, when he was killed off in whatever issue that was. I can't remember. Um, Brave and the Bold, was it? I think so. Or somewhere around there. Um, he was – I have to just assume that Wolfman said, no, you know, we're not going to use that character. You know, he's he's dead. Like um, who else uh, would be a good example of something like that? Um, um I'm sure there's other ones. I'm trying to think of who else uh, who else would have been dead by this point. Mr. Terrific, possibly. Do we see? I don't think we see, ever really see like Mr. Terrific in this. Um, even in like flashback tales, I don't think mm. like if they ever go back to like an Earth Two of the past. We don't see Earth Two Batman either, for that matter. Right. We only see him on a monitor um, when he actually would have been alive um, in a in a. I think it's like. Another couple issues or something like that, where where she's explaining. Maybe it's an issue seven, where where Harbinger is going through like Monitor's life, and he is kind of in the DC universe at that time when that Batman would have been alive. So he's sort of on the path. He's in, like, in a, I think I think that happened. Um, I'd have to look at that again. But um, and I also know that Wolfman was very keen on not killing off characters that were created before he was born. I do remember that. Yeah. So. Um, that whole idea about you know get Halstead, yeah, technically Harbinger could go and get Halstead, but that's not the game that Wolfman wants to play. He doesn't want to just all of a sudden start pulling in 
dead characters that we have been known to have died, you know, you know, it's not like he's going to go pull out, uh, I don't know, Crimson Avenger or, uh, you know, just trying to think of other characters that would, at this point, I guess there aren't many earth one characters that are dead or like Iris West, you know, for yeah. lack of a better argument. There aren't that many DC characters that are dead. It's yeah. in hell. If you think about it, there are probably more characters died in crisis on infinite earths than had died in all the 50 years leading up to it. <laughs> So that was my little note about about that section. You want to finish out the Arion stuff? Okay, we'll give it a shot. So we go back to 45,000 years ago. Note uh, briefly here that it doesn't tell us on what Earth, just 45,000 years ago. And then there's a couple of uh, text uh, captions here describing to us the fact that we are in Atlantis – uh, but in the middle of an ice age, and uh, then we see the character that uh, Harbinger has come back in time to retrieve, Arion, High Mage and Lord of Atlantis. I believe that was the subtitle of his uh, series at that time, Arion, mm-hmm. Lord of Atlantis. Yep. Eventually, Arion the Immortal. And he's musing to himself that he feels energy abounding. He's getting stronger because uh, of its uh, mounting presence. He gestures and creates that funny little uh, you know, star mosaic image that always forms around his hand whenever he uses his sorcery. And uh, he just uh, creates a little ice bridge across a nearby chasm to demonstrate to himself that he's gotten stronger because of this energy flux. He crosses the bridge. He's musing to himself about how ironic it is that he's trying to save Atlantis from this ice age, yet he feels drawn to the ice all the same because he finds it somehow comforting. And Like a, f- like a fortress of solitude. <laughs> to coin a phrase. <laughs> Just think, it's 45,000 years ago. You'll be able to sue him. <laughs> yeah, a little Mel Brooks for you tonight, folks. Yeah. Okay, then Harbinger shows up, and this is Dark Harbinger. Anyone? Being reminded here that she's been possessed by something. Her eyeballs are now black. And uh, Arion asks her if she's a sorceress. And she simply says to him, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, your power is needed. Come with me. Being commanding. Not uh, wheedling, not enticing, not uh, entreating. She's just saying, come with me. And then, uh, not even waiting for a reply, she attacks him. She shatters the ice bridge out from under him. And he yells as he's falling down into the chasm, And I cannot conjure a spell of levitation! No time to conjure a spell, only time to talk about it! And he falls down into the chasm, but Harbinger zips down, quote, Cruel lips curled in delight, but still the sorcerer must not die, at least not yet, not until he demands it. At the last possible moment, Harbinger reacts, and the two vanish. So, cruel... Cat and mouse harbinger here, possessed by some dark force, that shadowy thing that uh, insinuated itself upon her a couple of pages ago, back on page 19. Yeah. As we've mentioned, that shadowy thing apparently was familiar to her, or at least appeared familiar to her. Right, because she says, no, not you, which obviously then the reader should think, you know, well, then who? Who is she talking about? And then she says, not until he demands it. So once again, it's like, okay, what has been – nothing has really been dropped yet. I don't believe, you know, maybe Monitor has said something about his enemy, but nothing, you know, substantial. Yep. I think uh, um, 
Uh, the only other hint we've had is that uh, thing I mentioned uh, in the last episode when you know, the black mist creeps in you know, as if uh, with a mind of its own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, after each Earth is consumed, yeah, that's that's the only real intimation I think we've had up until you know now that there is uh, right. a, some definite malign intelligence at work here. That there is a definite enemy. Yeah. Um. Certainly, DC at this point was well into uh, publishing a broad spectrum of genres. You know. As you mentioned, like you know, well, there's like Sergeant Rock was out at this point still. I think Blackhawks had just maybe wrapped up right a couple, maybe a year or so before this. Um, they might have gone out of maybe some of the mystery in space uh, or um, some of the horror stuff might have gone out. But there still was Arik, Son of Thunder, and Arion, Lord of Atlantis. That did, those two titles were definitely still going on. Um. Or if they weren't, they were soon to be canceled, you know, or or just being canceled. So using Arion again to go to cross the the breadth and the width and the breadth of their characters is a nice selection. And in terms of magic, you know, if you don't want another Justice Leaguer in there with Zatanna, <laughs> I guess you got to go with Arion. Yeah. Well, there, there are a bunch of different magic users they could have chosen between, but for the reasons you've already said, Peter. Right? I think Ariane wasn't a very good choice. Yeah. Not only a magic wielder, but a DC historical character, a, uh, like a sword and sorcery genre character. Ties to the realm of ancient Atlantis. So that covers that base. They don't have to bring in an Aquaman family member. Right. I did uh, – the dialogue is interesting or, or the narration. Uh, someday soon a great hero will stem the frozen tide. Someday, but not this day. He is Arion, High Mage and Lord of Atlantis. So, you know, at first I was a little confused. I, I thought they were talking about someone else, but then I, but then you know, when you read it connected, it uh, obviously I guess they're assumed that they're talking about Arion. Um, a great hero will stem the frozen tide, but not today. It's like, well, is he not a great hero now? No. Okay. All right. No, he's just not stemming the frozen tide today. Yeah. <laughs> today he's pondering. And I do like the. Uh, Mastodon is that what it is? Yeah, frozen in the in the encroaching yeah. ice. Little little detail there by Paris. <laughs> yeah, little you know establishing shot, I guess, over the shoulder. Yeah, tells you that we're far enough into the ice age that uh, you know, all those critters have already been right. put on ice. And if Solovar is science, then we have now have our magic guy. So it's a nice little duality going on there. And that's all I had for the, that sequence. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. And uh, well, before we get into uh, the Firestorm and uh, Killer Frost sequence beginning on page 23, mm-hmm. let me just look at uh, that caption at the top of page 23. Earth 1, the present. So now we're specifically on Earth 1, but when we went from uh, Roger Hyden's uh, padded cell to 45,000 years ago Atlantis, um, no mention was made as to what Earth we were suddenly on when mm-hmm. Harbinger, well, possessed Harbinger, went to confront Arion. So on what Earth is Arion's Atlantis? You know, in which universe's timeline uh, were Arion's adventures supposed to take place? And I find myself wondering, you know, and this is, again, just a wild speculation here, stabbing in the dark, but uh, 
had they already begun to think about what to do with Power Girl at this point? Because I know – I think it was because of Paul Kupperberg specifically that uh, Power Girl was saved from oblivion. You know, the Earth 2 Superman mm-hmm. wasn't allowed to exist anymore. No one was allowed to remember him, but somehow his cousin found a place in the New World Order. And uh, they did that by uh, just snipping off her connection to Krypton and uh, grafting on a connection to Arion's Atlantis. So I'm wondering, are we – are they very subtly suggesting that perhaps Arion's Atlantis is part of Earth 2's history and that maybe the eventual reveal that uh, Power Girl is Arion's granddaughter and uh, a resident of ancient Atlantis sent into the future as opposed to being rocketed from the dying planet of Krypton 2 to Earth 2? I mean, is she a, are we are we seeing groundwork being laid here that she was never really a Kryptonian, but she was uh, a resident of ancient Earth too? Yeah, um, I think it's a little too early for that. Probably, yeah, you're probably right. Certainly, certainly, you know, I do like that that speculation because it, it is something that DC does do with her character. Right? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, the only connection I could sort of say to to enforce that uh, Arion is uh well there's a couple thoughts here first off um structurally um gorilla city doesn't get a listing of earth one or earth two and neither does legion of superheroes that sequence uh we just get the 30th century and we just get gorilla city so the only time we get the earth delineation is with um well, do we even get it with Firebrand? Um, oh, yeah, on Earth 2, yeah. Yeah, we definitely I, do with Firebrand, and we do with Firestorm here on the next page. But. And Firestorm and with Psycho Pirate. So it's not it's not totally universal through all those um, that, that they're delineating where. So, But we clearly know as readers, Gorilla City is Earth 1, Legion is Earth 1. Um, um, so, Arion, because he's, his adventures are set in the distant past, it's a little less clear. Right. Well, the only thing I can say to that is um, I used to read Arion, actually. Um, I actually always meant to collect the entire series. Um, I don't know if this is something that happens later, but the whole um, – there's a slight connection between some of the stuff that goes on in Arion and Warlord. It's sort of minor. Um and Warlord is definitely an Earth One concept because he has met um, certain characters, DC characters, prior to the Crisis. I'm, I'm, I think I have to maybe, maybe not. Maybe that is something that with Dan Jurgens it, it sort of came about, which mm. would put it right around this time. Yeah, I was almost sure yeah. that uh, Travis Morgan had met a couple of Earth One characters. Okay. Um, there's also. The only other, uh, and I don't know if this is before or after um, Crisis, but um, Arion appeared in DC Comics Presents, which is not a, you know, it doesn't, that's not like a 100% proof that it's Earth One, but True. it's normally they, they would del- delineate what Earth or where they were coming from. So, um, but again, I don't, I don't remember if that was before or after Crisis One. I'm almost positive it was before. Okay. Okay. I always took Arion to be an Earth One concept, um, and then obviously with the whole um, that Aquaman miniseries um, right around this time, I think it was '86. Again, that is after, but where 
um, it was a four issue miniseries where he gets the tragic camouflage suit, which I always liked. That <laughs> oh blue. yeah, that blue one with the uh, yeah, like the the, the wave simulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they like the underwater cam. Yeah, right. Yeah, I always loved that one. Um, Craig Hamilton, I think, was the or not Craig Hamilton. Um, Neil Posner, I forget who created. Anyway, um, there was very strong connections even before prior this is prior to the atlantis chronicles that peter david would write of uh, between aquaman and arion um even to the point of saying that um when it comes to atlantis there will always be two brothers who are at war and that is something that is very, uh, a concept with arion is that he and his brother are oh, uh, garn danuth or whatever his name is right yeah yeah they're always going at it and so so is aquaman and ocean master mm-hmm. and so even prior to – in fact, that four-issue miniseries um, actually is uh, – some of that stuff Peter David mines for Atlantis Chronicles and definitely for his Aquaman um, run. So yes, that – again, that that is still – that's post-crisis um, shortly you know, after 1986. But I, I always feel that Ariane is an Earth-1 type character or history. Yeah. So – Maybe that's enough. Um, uh, enough, not evidence, possibly, to sway you uh, to 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 that thinking. <laughs> I, I have no difficulty believing that Ariane is an, on Earth One. It, it's, yeah. it wasn't until you know I saw the fact that they went out of their way to they they bothered to tell us we were back on Earth One for the firestorm scene. You know, and until I saw that, it never even crossed my mind that Ariane was anything but an Earth One character. Although there is something very interesting about Earth-1 being in the present and having the Legion of Superheroes of the future and Earth-2 being in the past and having Arion all the way back. Like there is something kind of nice about that symmetry, but um, yeah. Um, can I do the Firestorm thing? No, go right ahead. Yeah, I, I was a fan of Firestorm and um, this uh, character in this uh, – Little section here, you know, having a Justice Leaguer, having one of DC's younger characters, um, very hot-headed um, character. Also sort of a Spider-Man-esque feel um, in terms of um, having a younger character in a title with a lot of supporting cast mar- uh, uh, supporting cast characters and ha- having to deal with his father and having to deal with high school and all that stuff. So, um I was a big fan of Firestorm back in this time. So Earth-1, the present, he is uh, speeding through through, uh, um, a city, which may or may not be New York. Um, I forget where his – where his – he went to place. He went to college in Pittsburgh, didn't he? He went to college in Pittsburgh, but I don't remember if he's there just yet. I don't know if it's post or – I forget. Um, But he's – he has already been contacted by Harbinger because he is going after uh, one of his main foes in the form of Killer Frost. And if you're watching uh, the Flash TV series right now, this this um, these two characters will have a lot of resonance in the. I would assume by the end of the season or next season. Um, so there he says. He says, "There she is, Killer Frost, my dangerous enemy," um, and he. Talks out loud, um, which is a storytelling conceit, but also can work for the character because within him is the the uh, character of Professor Stein. Mm-hmm. They share they share mind and body, 
as um, a character that is all about fusion and nuclear stuff. Um, <laughs> so he frees Killer Frost. She's she doesn't know why, and she is a villain. So she strikes him. She she sends a bunch of icicles at him. Um, and he goes, all right, we don't got time for this. Harbinger, Harbinger, where are you? And not only does Harbinger show up, but so does Psycho Pirate in connection to what Harbinger said earlier about making um, that we need you. We have to do – we need your powers for one visit. Um, poor Firebrand still not here in this uh, little sequence. Yeah. What, is she in the trunk or something? <laughs> um. So Roger Hayden is back, and he's not only he's got the mask, he's got his costume, and he says, "You know this will hurt me." And Harbinger says, "No, I trust. Trust me, you will feel no pain." And the important mission that he needs is he needs to sway over one of his secret society um, teammates, as you mentioned earlier, uh, to the side of good, and he decides to do it with love of all things, love for your enemy, love for. Um, uh, love for man, love for Earth, because she needs to save the universe, and especially love for your enemy. And she falls head over heels with Firestorm, gives him a pucker on the lips, and he almost freezes. You can see him shivering in the next panel, which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, and uh, they said, all right, thanks. Uh, it's time for us to leave, and uh, we'll see where they're going in another page. So we got yet another character in here, major character, um, two major characters, well, one major character and his villain, um, kind of speaking along that whole, like, fire and ice thing, you know. Uh, I can see using Firestorm for his sheer power, um, even if it is untapped at this point. Mm -hmm. He uses it for wacky, you know, Looney Tunes type effects, like turning icicles into flowers. Yeah. Which I actually wrote a note about because um, his powers do not affect organic matter, so he can't he can't turn people into things. And I think there was even something where he tried to turn somebody's clothing into something, but it was made of cotton or wool or something, and he couldn't actually affect it. So I thought it was interesting that he turned it into flowers, unless they're like fake flowers, you know. Could if he can't affect organic, can he actually create organic? And I don't, I don't think that's part of his, but I'm not sure. Well, perhaps they're artificial flowers then. Yeah, yeah, that's what I went with. Um, and not only is he a Justice Leaguer and sort of a flagship, uh, or or in the in DC's publishing roster, it's definitely an important book. But he does have history with George Perez, who drew some of the chapters when Firestorm was a backup tale in Flash, of all titles. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of little um, lot of little connections there, which also kind of make gives uh, a little bit of support of why Firestorm should be showing up in the Flash TV series. Um, it wasn't... He had a like what like a six issue series I think when he was first introduced and yeah it didn't last very long it was, yeah. it was like nineteen seventy eight I think and he showed up Jared Conway mm-hmm. and he showed up in the Justice League as a new member and then he was a backup 
uh, in Flash. So it's kind of interesting that he is actually spinning out of the Flash TV series because there is a little bit of history there. So um, not that not that TV viewers would know that, and maybe not many comic readers either. But I would. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense to me. So. Um. Oh, and also the. Uh, it's also interesting that Psycho Pirate Killer Frost, part of the Secret Society of Supervillains, which was a Justice League storyline that Perez also drew. That's also true. Yeah. It was like number 194 through 197, I think. Ah, I love that. I love that one. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. Because I love Earth 1, Earth 2 stories, and I love the Secret Society, so put them together, slap Perez art on it. Good had, stuff. Had the Signal Man in it, if I remember correctly. He's yeah. One yeah. of my favorite Batman villains. Ragdoll. Yeah. And the monocle. The monocle. <laughs> ah, Earth 2. <laughs> we hardly Earth knew you. Yes, yes. <laughs> ah. Worlds <laughs> are colliding. This is why we do this podcast. Our vibrational frequencies are slowing down, Peter. We're going to occupy the yeah. same space at the same time soon. Uh, well, we are two hours in, so. It's terrifying. That's true. Almost, uh, you know, like half a minute away from the two-hour mark. Yep. All right. Shall we power through? Uh, well, let me see here if there's any th- oh, sorry, have yeah. any additional notes about this couple of pages. Um, okay, a psycho pirate uh, makes mention. Uh, he says, Harbinger, there's something I didn't tell you. As much as it hurts, once I start tampering with emotions, I I never want to stop. So there's there's the addictive angle to his powers that I mentioned earlier. So he's going to start going a little bit loony. Um, before, so this is the first time he gets to use his emotion altering powers here. He takes off the Medusa mask, models the emotion he wants uh, his victim, Killer Frost, to feel. He's, I guess that's the look of love he's wearing there. <laughs> could, uh, yeah. could just as well be the look of you know, food coma for all. I don't know. <laughs> and then Killer Frost looks, gets all googie eyed and. Uh, and we get this uh, sort of a, a comedic subplot that uh, goes on in the background for the next couple of issues of her constantly trying to spoon with Firestorm and him not being completely into it. And uh, he, she says to him at the bottom of page 24, don't resist me. We were made for each other, which you know, on a meta level is true because uh, she was created to be his uh, enemy. So. And the appropriateness of fire and ice. You know, it's, you know, the characters themselves are aware of that, so. That little kiss there is interesting because one of the ways he chooses to defeat her in his book at one point is by kissing her and have because she absorbs the heat of of men of people. Um, don't ask me why 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 a, a creature of ice would do that, but uh, it was some something along those lines. So he says, "All right, fine. If you're gonna if you want it, then I'll give you all of it." And he kisses her and like radiates incredible amounts of whatever and. Um, she can't take it, and she overloads. I well, that that so. was the. I think we're on the second Killer Frost here, aren't we? Um, on this one, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because the first one was Crystal Frost, I think, and this is Louise Lincoln, the uh, Killer Frost two. Oh, is that what you mean? Um, hmm, that's a good question because. Let me see about that. Uh, so who was the one that was in the Secret Society? I, I can't answer that. Um, I'm looking at the Crisis Index again, and it is telling me that it's uh, that this is the second Killer Frost that we're seeing. Yeah, this 
Louise Lincoln, and that is the one where that happened. She was, uh, um, she first appeared in Firestorm Twenty One. That's the storyline I was referencing, where uh, um, she repeats the experiment of her mentor, and the way that she he gets rid of her is that he she absorbs, she tries to absorb, and he kisses her or something like that. Like she kisses him, and then they freeze and. And then he tried to he tried to overload her. So yeah, that's her, Louise Lincoln. That's and that's who you're saying this is, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I I would be able to look it up, but I sold all my Firestorm issues years ago. So <laughs> oh, one of many former you know, components of your collection that you miss sometimes. I'm sure. Yeah. Out out in the eBay world. Yeah. So that is never more than a wild pig sale away, you know. That's right. That's right. It's a comforting thought. <laughs> all right. All right. Now, now time to power through. Good. All right. So then we move on to page 25. Uh, the uh, recruitment drive is more or less over. Um, Monitor is uh, musing to himself aboard his satellite. He's saying, yes, hurry back, Harbinger, for I fear our mutual enemy may not allow me much time for planning. So that puts it in very explicit terms that there is an adversary here. This is not just some kind of natural disaster. Already another Earth has perished, the Monitor continues, and five heroes I needed are gone. Thus I've dispatched your replicants to seek out others as replacements, though we the readers will not see those replicants or what they do. Lila, when I first observed this Earth knowing what was to come, when I found you a half-dead child floating lost at sea, when I saved you, nurtured you, watched you grow into womanhood these past twenty years, when I came to love you like the daughter I never had and never could, little did either of us know that one day you would be my killer. I fear for you, Lila. My life may be forfeit, but you, my dear, you hold in your hands the fate of the cosmos itself. And all of this is uh, told and accompanied with little, just as little segmentary panels that show little uh, partial close-ups of different parts of the monitor's body. We get a couple of shots of his gloved hand, which is what we've been getting in monitor's cameos in various DC series for the past year. We get an extreme close-up of his nose and eyes. We see him at a distance, his billowing cape behind him as he walks away from us. We see another close-up of his gloved hand, so it's... This page actually looks more like Keith Giffen's work than it does like Perez. <laughs> it's funny. But, yeah, so we're still playing a little coy with the monitor's uh, physical appearance. We, we have seen a full-body shot of him by now. Not in this series, but uh, in one of his cameos in G.I. Combat, of all places, when um, sort of a holographic image of the monitor uh, encounters uh, the ghost of Jeb Stewart as he haunts the haunted tank. And Jeb Stewart is the only character the, – the ghostly General Jeb Stewart is the only character in that story that is able to see the monitor. But it's the first time that anybody, readers included, got a good look at what he looks like. But we haven't seen him in color yet, and uh, we don't get that until the very last page of this issue. But I think it also speak it also – if readers are reading it to this detail, um, I would think they would start picking up – the, the connection to all those shadow beings as well and sort of going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why, why do the shadows look like monitor? You know, I mean, not only are we, we don't know who the enemy is, but you know, we're reading this in hindsight and we sort of know to trust the monitor, but even this early could, should we be trusting him? You know, he's just, he's been going through the DC universe, powering up all these villains. Um, and uh, there's been certain 
sequences where he comes across as a villain. Um, so, you know, even though this dialogue certainly speaks to him being, you know, um, a benevolent figure, but yeah, it's, it is interesting to, to, when you say these close-ups of his cape and these gauntlets and, and his brow, even, I mean, it's all the things that we've been seeing with yeah. these shadow things. So. Exactly. All the things he has in common with the, the shadow demons profile. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a nice little connection going on there. Um, so this another Earth has perished and five heroes are gone thing. Um, I've seen it make mention on some sites where they allude that to Earth 3. Um, in the next – I'm jumping ahead. But in the next issue, he does mention that the last Earth that was destroyed was Earth 3 um, because at this point I – you know, I'm sort of reading it going, oh, it's just another Earth that we haven't seen. But then there's dialogue in the next issue that kind of counters that. Mm. But why would he be calling them heroes? And Well, uh, because he doesn't draw the same line between heroism and villainy that uh, – well, maybe the heroes and villains themselves would. Right. He's so kind of dismissive think- of the idea of quote-unquote villain. Yeah, I, I actually, I'm actually with you, Peter. I, I, it never really occurred to me that uh, the crime syndicate would be the five characters he's talking about, and I, I don't think that's what Wolfman had in mind either. I think in the next issue, when he just he, he says, uh, you know, the Earth Three was the last to die, I think he just kind of forgot. Like he, he just threw the, this is kind of a throwaway detail here that another Earth has perished and five heroes I needed are gone. I think maybe he just threw that in here to, you know, to, to fire uh, the reader's imagination. Like, gosh and golly, what 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 earth could that have been? What uh, unknown and now never to be known costume champions were lost to the four panel, uh, the paneled page annals for all time? You know, what what characters could we have seen here? Maybe there are characters from I don't know, Standard Nedor or the American Comics Group, some other <laughs> defunct publisher that DC could have bought but didn't. Not to mention he says, I've already dis- uh, dispatched your replicants to seek out other replacements, but we never see those replacements either. You know, I was trying to think um, – because we've seen eight characters so far. We know that there's going to be 15 in the big first issue um, gathering, and you know, I was like, well, are some of those the ones we haven't seen yet? But I was like, no, that doesn't make sense either. So yeah, it's um, – there's, there's a lot of bits and – bits and pieces of dialogue in a lot of different places that it's sort of the same thing where it's like if you get too specific with with it um it's going to drive you batty um and that'll come up in some of the later issues too but i just thought that was an interesting little passage hmm. oh definitely yeah oh we get a little uh background on the relationship between lila and monitor Mm-hmm. I don't think we'd known before this that uh, Lila was you know, a foundling, you know, that uh, she, Monitor came across her floating after a shipwreck and that uh, he raised her over a period of 20 years like his own daughter. And then we get back to the, the those uh, formal similarities, you know, faint though they may be, between his outfit and uh, Harbinger's costume. And that's something that we never really get explained unless I missed it somewhere. But all, the the lore of Harbinger's origin is always that she is just a half-dead child floating lost at sea. We don't get where she's from. We can assume possibly she's from Earth-1, but we're not sure. Um, but it's always just one sort of image of a young child clutching a piece of debris and water. We don't get it in this issue, but 
we'll get it in later issue and we'll get it in some other places too, um, which I thought was always interesting. I don't, you know, we, we never really, that's it. That's all we know about her past, which is cool. And there's some elaboration on that uh, later on, much later on in the uh, Return of Donna Troy special. Oh, see, now I'm not remembering that, so I'd have to go back and read that. Yeah, it's, it's about her and Dark Angel, and uh, I think she was a, a resident of Earth-7, and she was actually rescued by – I forget if it was the AIM monitor or uh, or maybe it was the anti-monitor, but uh, um, she was rescued from a burning building, you know, taken from fire, whereas uh, Harbinger was taken from water. Mm. Yeah, because uh, I'm a little fuzzy on the details too, but uh, yeah, there's, there's some kind of connection between Donna Troy slash Harbin slash right. Dark Angel and, and Harbinger. Right. Yeah, she was supposed to be like the new Harbinger for Infinite Crisis and all that, or post Infinite Crisis. Um, yeah, I guess even because during was it 52 or Countdown, where Donna Troy actually narrated the history of the DC Universe by Dan Jerkins. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that was Countdown. Okay. Right, right. Because you remember in 52, it was Secret Origin strips ah, that's in the right. back of each that's issue. Right. And then, yeah, the, the the history thing was in the back of the pages of Countdown yeah. when we learned that there were multiple monitors, an idea that I've never gotten to, I must confess. <laughs> um, so if he found her 20 years ago, what was going in? What was going on in DC Universe in 1965? And uh, say if she was through Earth-1, like does that does that speak to anything? Uh, when did the Teen Titans first appear? Uh, fifty-four. Uh, no, I forget. Uh, oh, definitely uh, not. Got... That's that's before Barry Allen. Oh, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> Come so on, Mister Titans Tower guy. Hold on, sixty-four. Right? Oh my God, I can't believe I don't remember. I'm oh because it's Brave and the Bold, fifty sixty in June of nineteen sixty-five. That's what it is. Aha! So there you go. That's something that was going on. So okay. Again, it's like you know when you when you get a number in there twenty years ago from nineteen eighty five. Yeah, but that's twenty years in DC so. Universe time too. True, true. Tends to be a rather, well, probably a longer period than it is in in real real world time. Yeah. Um. Well, that's all I have for that page. Oh, and we also get the very important detail that uh, Lila slash Harbinger is going to kill the monitor. Oh, right, yeah. Setting up a very Shakespeare kind of thing or, you know, it's like he already knows. He already knows what's going on with her and that yeah. this is going to happen. So, mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, well, one of the classes I took at Bowling Green, you know, in grad school was about uh, women in uh, action-based genres of popular entertainment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think my professor would have identified Harbinger as a kind of uh, daddy's girl. Yeah, that, that's like a stock type of uh, of action women. That mm -hmm. she's uh, she was raised or um, was under the rather strict tutelage of this somewhat distant father figure, and in the end, she ends up, you know, in spite of herself, striking back at him. In a way, you know, she's under the control. We'll, we'll talk about this when the 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 killing actually happens. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes sense. Yeah. All right, and now we get you know the first big uh, group shot aboard the monitor satellite. It's not the biggest group shot aboard the monitor the, the monitor satellite. You know the the shot I'm thinking of. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A couple of issues later, we'll have a lot of uh, footnoting to do then. Oh boy. 
But here we are, page 26 and 27. We've got the uh, monitors team finally assembled. The great 15. Yep. They have been summoned, including several that uh, we don't actually get to see uh, being gathered in by uh, the Harbinger duplicates. At least not in we, – we do see them, some of them in the tie-ins but not in the crossovers, but not in this issue, yeah. Mm-hmm. Caption in the upper left says, Enter now the chamber deep inside the monitor's satellite, for here have the powers assembled. Here are all those who have thus far been, thus far been brought from Earths 1 and 2. And directly Wrong. under that, who's standing right under that, Caption? Blue Beetle. Man, I haven't seen so many costumes since last Halloween, and I bet none of them's ever even heard of the Blue Beetle. Right, because he's not from Earth 1 or Earth 2, at least at least what we'll know. Yep, sooner or later we'll all know that for certain. At this point, as you, you know, uh, opined earlier, Peter, and I think there's something to what you said, uh, it might be that uh, maybe Wolfman and company hadn't quite made up their minds yet whether he was not from Earth 1 or Earth 2. Mm-hmm. Maybe they could get away with just saying, oh, all these Charlton characters have been on Earth 1 all along and we just never bothered to tell you about it. But then eventually they said, nah, let's just give them their own autonomous universe and then destroy it. <laughs> Which makes sense. So I, I'm thinking Wolfman was kind of on the fence between those two alternatives at that point. And so just kind of subtly, tactfully slipped this in here saying you know, that, that, that line about how none of them's ever heard of the Blue Beetle, which could be taken a couple of different ways. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you know, Earth 2 seemed to be the one that the dumping ground of all the other – published all the other characters that were at like Fawcett and quality and wherever else, you know, that was earth two was like the generic dumping ground. Um, did any of them go to earth one at all? You know, I, I don't, I don't think any of them did. Right. You know, so any I of, could, uh, of which any of the characters that were, were plucked from other publishers. Hmm. Get any? Uh, well, the shadow, while they had the license to him, met Batman. So he had to have been on earth one. Mm hmm. Uh, Captain Action was probably on Earth-1. But yeah, thinking specifically of, oh, well, hell, for that matter, Wildcat was on Earth-1 for a little while there. That's Yeah. Or yeah. maybe Earth... Yeah, that, that's one of those situations where they had to invent an... Uh, Earth-B. Exactly. B for Brave and the Bold, B for Bob Haney, <laughs> B for Bollocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Had to invent so a special I, narrative function, uh, functionary Earth in which to plop stories that didn't quite seem to fit in in either Earth's continuity. Right, right. So, so that's that'll be rectified, and that actually is only something I only realized in this reading of it. I didn't, I never really thought about that before, but it was until I saw that and said Earth One and Earth Two. I said, "What? No, that's not right." So, uh, all those years prior to reading it. I, I that that never really dawned on me that that was incorrect. Well, at least at this point. Yeah. 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 Correctness. <laughs> correctness yeah. is fluid in this series. Like that's the fluidity of correctness is kind of what this series is all about. Right. Changing what's correct. So then we just uh, it's a panorama view, another uh, sort of double page spread of all the different characters, and all of them with more or less all of them with. Uh, some kind of dialogue or thoughts. Um, uh, Dawnstar saying, you know, this is a, this is a, a what is it? Tartarus. 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 Yeah. Tartarus. I'm like, it's getting late. Uh, <laughs> smaller from, so much seems so much smaller from the outside, yet inside it stretches on for miles. Um, Solovar questioning 
you know, they, they stare at me. My presence here is uncomforting to them. Unlike us apes, they have not yet learned to look beyond the form to the soul that lives inside. He's very judgmental. <laughs> well, he's on the defensive, you know. He's, his prior encounters with humans, except Barry Allen, have not been uh, very, very pleasant. So he's, yeah. he's kind of learned to overreact to the presence of humans, I guess. Yeah. Up there and on we've, I was going to say, these, these three characters we've seen in this, so it's kind of nice that they are the ones that lead us into what you're going to say then. Yep. So they're, they're the guys we know at the party. Yeah. And then we meet some new faces. A uh, very small figure up in the background there on an upper landing is, uh, you, know, you know, the pink cloak with the – in my copy, you can't make out his facial features at all. But, no, not mine either. And he's thinking to himself, well, well, the girl warned me, didn't she? Some of my enemies are here. Still, I am Simon, and my psionic powers are virtually without limit. And oh, how I'd enjoy using them if the need arises. So there's another villain introduced here. Mm-hmm. Uh, very dear to Wolfman's heart, uh, since he is a new Teen Titans villain. He sure is. Yeah. And uh, with that connection, sort of right below him, we have... Two characters that we haven't seen um, uh, that were that were collected outside of this issue: Geoforce of the Outsiders and Cyborg of the New Teen Titans. Who it does make sense that they would be standing next to each other because they have several connections. Uh, one of them being that there was a crossover between the two titles. Um, another one is that they were two very popular titles at the time, and another connection of. Um, Geoforce is the brother of a Titans character named Terra, who had just recently passed away in a in a Teen Titans um, major major Teen Titans story arc, probably the major the most major new Teen Titans story arc ever. We talking the um, Judas contract? Judas contract, yes. <clears throat> um, and that's there's there you go. There's another um. You know, that whole thing I was saying about the monitor not being able to bring about uh, people that were dead. I I want to – was she referenced somewhere? Hmm. Well, it didn't happen in this issue, but uh, – No. Or was it a crossover where she says something about, you know, what about uh, – anyway. So, um, yeah, and uh, Geoforce, you know, to, to go to my whole fire, air, water thing, he is definitely of the earth because his powers are all based on um, earth uh, everything, uh, lava and um, magnetism, geomagnetism, and and anything and everything that has to do with Earth. And she said, he said, he's he's very doubtful. Cyborg, do you believe this Harbinger's plea is a real one? If it isn't, well, then she just spent a bundle putting on one heck of a practical joke. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's cyborg wit. Yeah. I have to say, too, you know, the whole using Cyborg as the uh, new Teen Titans character uh, representative, um, you know, whether you want to speak to diversity or not. Um, uh, he also was in the cartoon around this time as well. True, true. Like um, the, the superpowers incarnation of super friends. Yeah, the Galactic Guardians, whatever the hell they called it, I forget. Or was that a different one? Um, hey, I think that came right after Super. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, th I think you're probably right. Yeah, okay. Galactic Guardians. Yeah, because Firestorm was included in the uh, the Superpowers team, and I think he mm -hmm. was probably still around for Galactic Guardians then. Yep. So you know, this whole uh, I, I 
just to get on a little soapbox here, you know, people saying that the DC is trying to force Cyborg into a spotlight position. Well, he's actually been that way for a long time. Um, if you, again, you know, as a prominent black character on a superhero cartoon, um, and then, you know, here in Crisis as well, um, isn't he right on the front cover? Yeah, he's sort of on the, uh, on the, near the spine of the front cover, but, so, it's not totally un, it's not, there isn't lack of precedence to try to make him into a major sort of character. Now, whether people latch onto him, that's a different story, but. So that's my little soapbox. Hmm. Oh, interesting uh, side note about Simon, by the way. And I'm getting this out of the uh, the crisis uh, index. Okay. Because Simon is brought to the monitor satellite by Harbinger in Tales of the Teen Titans number 58, which is uh, actually, as of this point, had not been published yet. Mm-hmm. It wasn't published until several months later. Um uh, he is informed at that point that the crisis on infinite Earths will begin in three months and he must remain on the satellite during that time and is thus unseen behind the scenes in all subsequent appearances of the Monitor and Lila prior to this issue. So, you know, as per Tales of the Teen Titans number 58, uh, apparently uh, Simon has been hanging around the Monitor's satellite for some time. <laughs> Probably gather, gathering intelligence the whole time. Intelligence that I'm sure he had uh, lots of plans to use, but he didn't get the chance because... He got his brains literally blown out in it, which we'll see happen in a later issue. Um, you want to do fire? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, we've got this whole little Earth 2 click going on in the middle of the room. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you know, speaking of diversity here, I'm going to break down the characters in the room here. Um, we've got uh, 10 Earth 1 characters. And then we've got four from Earth 2 and uh, Ted Core, Blue Beetle, kind of on the fence here, possibly representing Earth 4. Later on, we'll learn that he definitely represents Earth 4. But, uh, yeah, in the middle of the room, we've got Psycho Pirate just kind of hovering in the middle, probably you know, mildly catatonic, maybe still tingling with the rush of uh, inspiring love in Killer Frost. But in any event, he's not speaking or thinking in, in this big panel. Uh, instead, we've got uh, Firebrand zipping past, musing to herself that she... She knows Obsidian, who's standing down there next to Earth 2 Superman. The squadron recently met him and his friends. But Superman looks so old, hardly the man of steel I know so well. Well, I guess everybody ages. So it's it's the – we've got the World War II era Danette Riley, the uh, – uh, the uh, 1940s Earth 2 Firebrand 2, but we've got the uh, 1985 version of uh, Earth 2 Superman. And uh, representing <clears throat> the next generation of Earth 2 heroes, we've got uh, Todd Rice, Obsidian, son of the Earth 2 Green Lantern. And there's the Earth 2 Superman who's uh, gesturing up at Firebrand and saying, Firebrand, it's been a while. Cut off in mid-sentence as she flies past, not even realizing that he's spoken. And uh, Obsidian makes an excuse for her, saying, I think she's as stunned at all this as I am. And uh, the fact that uh, Superman doesn't get a chance to finish the sentence, attempting to catch up with Firebrand, because we don't know at this point, I think, what uh, becomes of Firebrand post-war. One assumes that Roy Thomas had some ideas to what would happen to the uh, Earth-2 characters that he created in All-Star Squadron and what futures he would chart for them in the modern-day Earth-2 that he was depicting in his Infinity, Inc. series at the same time. 
And to this day, I'm not really sure what uh, Firebrand's ultimate fate was post-World War II. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, it certainly makes sense that you would use this, the the, the more present-day Earth-2 Superman, because that is the one that visually is a shorthand to, to uh, separate him from Earth-1. You know, the Earth-2 modern Superman with the gray temples and, mm. you know, older look. Like, you, you yeah. just... More you Art Deco that. styled S Shield, and yeah. depending on who's drawing it, sometimes you get those, those crinkled sweater cuffs around his sleeves yeah. too. Yeah, Perez definitely does. He draws them. They're they're there on the cover, front cover. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, it's, and it's good that they went that route too because you, know, you want to represent the Superman legend in some way. You need to have a Superman, but if you put in the uh, you know the Earth One Superman, the big gun of big guns. You know the flagship character of DC. I mean, he, he's likely going to dominate all the proceedings here. Mm-hmm. And as I, you know, as I pointed out in my reading from my thesis last episode, you know, DC was at pains not to allow any one character to dominate anything. They're trying to dissenter all of this and make it a story about the DC universe as a whole, which is why that they allowed these newly created characters like Pariah, Harbinger, the Monitor, Alex Luther, and so forth to bear so much of the uh, the narrative function. Right. And if you're going to use Superman of Earth 2, you got to put him in a position where he has knowledge of the multiverse and um, other Earths. And, and, you know, a young Superman of Earth 2 may not have that as much as an older Superman of Earth 2 would. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's uh, defining this Earth 2 Superman and what he brings to the party is precisely age, experience, and the confidence and wisdom that that brings. Yeah. Um. Arion is more about the science of, of the monitor ship, which is something that even Atlantis had, but he's saying that it's even greater than Atlantis. But he definitely feels the gnawing of evil. It grows and chokes the air. So his mystical energies are um, tuned into something. Something's not right, letting the readers know that something's not right just yet. And down there, uh, sort of between Arion and uh, Obsidian, we've got uh, the well, the Green Lantern Corps' representative in all of this, and this would be John Stewart, who was the uh, acting Green Lantern of Space Sector twenty eight fourteen as of the mid eighties. Hal Jordan was in retirement, and you know, crisis fun fact from several episodes ago: um, Hal Jordan really did not make any appearance in the Crisis on Infinite Earths maxi series. He showed up in uh, the Crisis crossovers in the Green Lantern series, but uh, he wasn't in Crisis itself. Right. Yes. The Guy Gardner was wielding a ring for part of the series, but uh, uh, but for by and large, it's Hal Stewart. I mean, Hal Stewart, John Stewart, is <laughs> representing the core here, and he's using his ring to scan the satellite around him, and you know, you know, thinking like an architect, he's trying to find the power source for the satellite. And wondering to himself who the monitor is, and he's acknowledging for the first time in this issue, uh, you know, the ruse that the monitor had been employing for the past year or several months, however long it is, in DC time versus real time. His pose as a an arms dealer, you know, power broker, etc., you know, which was all the time just a, a sham, just a canard, something he was doing uh, to conceal his true uh, intentions of. Uh, studying the superhumans of various time periods and worlds to gauge their strengths and weaknesses and determine how best to use them to save 
know, what, what remains of the multiverse. Right. But uh, John Stewart, as far as he knows, he's just uh, some guy who's supplying weapons to criminals. But if he was doing that, Stewart wonders to himself, why did he bring us here? Good thinking there, John Stewart. Yeah. I do like that Dr. Polaris is sort of right on the he heels of that thought, um, connecting, you know, if you want to connect Green Lantern, Dr. Polaris, to the Green Lantern mythos and as, as a villain of Green Lantern. Uh, maybe not necessarily um, John Stewart just yet, but um, and whereas everybody's sort of pontificating or, or not, or they're sort of uh, you know in self sort of just in awe and looking around and trying to talk to each other in true villain form. I demand to see the Monitor now. Yeah. Doctor Polaris does not like to be kept waiting. Yep, showing off his ego, classic yeah. villain ego, which is you know, exaggerated, larger than life, but then. Now, take into account that Dr. Polaris is kind of a split personality case. Understandable that he'd be a little over-the-top and two-dimensional. He's really only half a personality. Yeah. And I absolutely love the characterization of Firestorm up there. Yeah, showing um, off for his date up there. Yep, and absolutely he should be the one that would know everybody here as a member of the Justice League and as a youthful character – I know them all. There's Earth 2, Superman. There's Geoforce from Outsiders talking with Cyborg from the Teen Titans and the rest. Well, hey, quit nibbling on my ear. <laughs> um, I like that. In, in that. in this sort of notion of why these ones were picked, um, that was another sort of notch with Firestorm, you know. Um, I kind of was going through it all and, and – and, Picking out some of the more elemental ones again, you know, like Doc, like Polaris, you know, we uh, the whole magnetism thing is something that will come up later, um, especially if you, you know, not to give it away, but if you think about Flash and how he goes through um, the worlds and and what else is needed, like there's something interesting about making sure he's there, making sure Geoforce is there. Um, you have Simon and Psycho Pirate for for a me for mental and emotional aspects. Um, I mentioned about Arion and Solovar sort of being a flip flop of magic and science, or or um, yeah, like magic and and science. And then you have Blue Beetle that's sort of caught in the middle of it, at least. But you know, at this point, he still has the scarab, but that's something that'll be tweaked later. And it is mystical, but he's a man of science, you know. So there's something. Interesting there. He doesn't even have the scarab anymore. So we're told that. I think, yeah, later on we find out that the main reason he was brought in, well, the, the main in-story reason he was brought mm -hmm. in was because of the scarab and that it might, its mystic powers might enable him to dispel the shadow demons. But uh, then he has to, uh, he has to cop to the fact that he's uh, lost the scarab somehow. And yeah. Doesn't even have that edge anymore. Um. Cyborg, uh, you know, if you want to think of sort of like tech, I, I wasn't quite certain, you know, really where he fit in other than just being, you know, a major, major character in New Teen Titans, uh, someone that Wolfman obviously had very strong feelings for, um, and he has several connections with the characters. Um, Earth 2 Superman we talked about, Obsidian, we'll, we'll, we'll find out soon enough why, why he's chosen, um, and with uh, Green Lantern, the entire thing is based off of Green Lantern cosmology, you know, so you, you have to have a Green Lantern here. And if you're going to have to have him, then you pick the one that is currently 
wielding the ring, as you mentioned. So, so those were just some of the notes I had about some of that stuff. <laughs> Definitely an Earth One heavy bunch. Yeah. Well, and I, you have to laugh at you know Superman saying, "All right, well, what could threaten both Earth Two and Earth One?" Well, how about all the characters that ever threatened you guys in all those crossovers? <laughs> yes. Uh, and you, yeah, like once a year for the last you know twenty five years. Yeah. Don't be so so naive, Superman. <laughs> yeah. And Obsidian just kind of ducks the question. He, he's not even he can't even begin to think about what could threaten both Earths. He's still getting his head around. The fact that he's in a room full of people from more than one Earth. Yeah. He's wondering aloud to Superman, you know everyone here? Some of these guys give me the spooks. And look at what character you see over his shoulder. Oh. That is unfortunate. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Although in my book, he's, he's green. His face is green. Oh, yeah, you, you but... can see the, the, the skin tone in my book. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's good old-fashioned Earth 2 racism, right? There. Oh, Jesus. Well, Todd Rice is not the most level-headed guy, right? Yeah, well, he didn't have a very good father figure. Right, and he wasn't... And I'm not talking I... about Alan Scott. I'm talking about his adopted dad, Todd right. Rice. No, no, not Todd Rice. Hey. What is it, Jeremy Rice? Yeah, I think that was his adopted father's yeah. name, who was an abusive jerk. And at least at this point, we don't know if Roy Thomas had any notions of making Obsidian homosexual, but he he is in later life later publications so um but he yeah he always came across as kind of like the wally west of of the infinity inc group he was kind of hot-headed and stubborn and you know quick to judge yes fiercely overprotective of his sister jade Mm -hmm. really didn't like her relationship with brainwave jr right then again who wants their sister dating somebody named brainwave jr (laughs) I do like that the bottom panels, whereas the first sort of big panel across the two pages is uh, you know, us getting into them individually and all these five panels below where um, in the middle of them we get the shadow demons ready to attack. Um, it's more about connecting the characters hmm. in ways that – you know, like when would Arion ever really talk to talk Dr. Polaris <laughs> ever? You know? Only in crisis. Right. Only but yet, in... yeah. But yet, like, you know, Cyborg, Geoforce, and Simon, they're very related. They, they, they went up against each other, you know, at some point. So I like that, that it, it kind of gets us a little deeper into the characters, these five panels. Yeah, just the construction of it, too. Just the five main panels plus these little, you know, interstitial panels in between of the uh, shadow demons gradually creeping into the room. Overall, the effect just visually, it kind of looks like a you know, cartridges on Batman's utility belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Arion wondering if Doctor Polaris has sorcery. Polaris telling him to keep his hands off, or you'll find out the hard way. Firestorm sort of coming to terms with, hey, maybe, maybe Killer Frost isn't so bad after all. Yeah, you know, maybe I can make the most of this. Um. I do love that Simon is the one that's coming to Cyborg and whether he has ulterior motives or not, you know, saying, hey. It's Simon. He always has ulterior motives. We should declare a truce, Cyborg. Domehead, you can take that truce and shove it. Um, And then he too senses danger that we're about to be attacked. 
And then the next four pages, a fight scene breaks out. The first fight scene of the entire series, right? More or less, if you if you don't count the disaster chapters. Right. Well, I guess uh, well, Killer Frost tries to attack a firestorm, but nothing much comes of it. So yeah, it's got to have some action in a comic. Yeah. Oh, and Blue Beetle uh, beating up the you know, the terrorists or oh right hostage yeah, holders, true. whatever they are. But yeah, this is the first really big brawl of the series. Yeah, this is where you get uh you finally sort of get a little more explanation of what these shadows are. Solovar saying they have form and substance, uh, but they're shadows. Um again, their silhouettes very if you're paying attention, kinda matching what we just saw with the monitor, mm-hmm. which should make us either go what's going on, or if you're really intuitive, uh you can start to make connections of, you know duality and all that and maybe the villain is very much like the monitor mm. yes put on your carl jung hat and think in yeah. terms of shadows but yeah they've got the capes they got the prominent brows they got those armor plated epaulets so yeah and harbinger recognized them mm-hmm. so this is all starts to add up now and we don't know yet that they have the ability to cancel out human beings. I mean, we don't know how deadly these shadow demons really are just yet. They don't seem to be you know, acting to their full potential here. Right, because they clearly wrap around Dawnstar and and they get, you know, they're, they're touching people, they're touching Geoforce and yet they're not you know, making them explode or whatever it is that they're making them do the humans, you know, later, and heroes later. So it is kind of interesting that they're not, whether they... It makes you wonder, you know, is this again? Did Wolfman not know quite yet? Obviously, he can't kill these characters. These are his talking points. You know, these are his these are his ways for readers to get into the series. So he can't just kill them off right away. Um, so you just show them as a threat, but not exactly the full potential just yet. And while the heroes engage them in battle for the first time. Uh, then we return to a point that you raised a while ago, Peter, this panel with Lila. You know, once again, Lila in her you know, purple or magenta flowing robe thing. Not Harbinger anymore. She's reintegrated. And she's saying to herself, it's begun and I, I can't even help. I've integrated my replicants, drawn them inside me again, but with only moments to spare. I cannot separate for so long or my powers dissipate. And we, like the Earths themselves, would fade from existence. I I am still so weak. So she's in this panel. She's really drawing uh, similarities between herself, you know, her own vulnerability, and that of the Earth. So she she'd fade from existence. But uh, you know, implied there is also the fact that that vulnerability comes from dividing herself, uh-huh. or making herself into a, a multi harbinger. It's like the universe is in danger because it's a multiverse when it maybe should have been just one universe all along. So that was. It was a good catch you made a while ago there, Peter. I love Obsidian's hesitation. Uh, like living shadows, like myself. Can I fight them or could they destroy me? And, it, and it's Superman who says, uh, Obsidian, they're surrounding us. We need you. That's right, because Obsidian is of the self-obsessed, self-absorbed, self-seeking me generation. But ge- greatest generation Superman just wades right in and starts punching. Yeah, it's good characterization. It's very true to... 
his characterization in the Infinity Inc. book. So I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we get more people meeting each other. Dawnstar meeting King Solovar, and you're an ape, but you can talk. You're a human with wings. Reality holds surprises for everyone. It's a little limiting on Dawnstar's part. I mean, she's from the future. She sees aliens daily. <laughs> she she likes a guy who's energy in a containment suit. Like, yeah, come on. Yeah, that's a very good point. If of all those characters present, she's probably one of those least likely to be shocked by a talking ape. Yeah, good point. But Salivar takes it in stride. <laughs> Spences a little fortune cookie wisdom there. Reality holds surprises for everyone. But but Don Star, you know, in her defense, is being she's being fairly rational on the on the preceding panel. She's actually reasoning this out. It's a good uh, observation, yeah. yeah. There's no connection between most of us. We couldn't possibly have a common enemy, so why bring us here only to attack us? So she arrives at the conclusion that this, the Monitor and Harbinger are probably not responsible for this attack. Right. And then we see Blue Beetle holding his own here without the aforementioned Mystic Scarab. And the best he can do is just to leap out of the way of these things. He realizes he's way out of his league, so what in blazes do I do about it? He's only out of his league for now. Nah. <laughs> then he'll be in a league. Um, I think a lot of this, too, is to showcase some pa- some of their powers, too, if you're not familiar with them, like how they work. You know, there's a clear shot of Firebrand. flying. She's been zipping around. Here she is using her powers. Um, you can't have a cyborg appearance without the appearance of a million decibels of white sound. Even though it's Always. it's pink sound in my yeah. copy. How about yours? It is pink as well. Yeah, that's a mistake. Uh, that's a mistake on the colorist's point. Yeah. Yeah, it should be, yeah, it should be white. Yeah, I didn't bring my uh, hardcover along with me tonight, but I'd be willing to bet that's probably recolored white in there. But yeah, you're right. That's something he brings up every single time. Oh, yeah. Um, then we see that uh, Obsidian actually can has uh, an advantage um, since he's a creature of shadow as well. And he could actually bypass them striking him and land a punch. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, he's you – know, you mentioned earlier this whole crisis event is in a way born of the Green Lantern cosmology because uh, mm-hmm. Wolfman found a way to tie it all back to the story in Green Lantern Volume 2, Number 40. Um, and, well, Obsidian is uh, kind of a legacy of uh, of the Owens and the the Guardians of the, of the Universe himself since uh, he was uh, – he's the son of the Earth 2 Green Lantern. And uh, he's he was in a sense sired by the Starheart, you know, that uh, conglomeration of ambient magic energy that the Guardians – gathered together, crumpled up, and threw into the middle of a sun, and uh, from whom uh, Alan Scott has uh, always derived his power, we eventually learn, by way of a form of retcon. So, uh, I guess it's fitting that as a member of the, uh, a part of a Green Lantern legacy, he should have some kind of active part to play here. Mm-hmm. But really, I think it's just Wolfman playing around with the fact that, uh, you know, they're shadows, he's kind of a shadow, what's going to mm-hmm. happen? Well, if you think about, like, the definitive... Because I was trying to think with Simon and Psycho Pirate, what other mentalists were there in the DC universe? You know, same thing with Obsidian. If you're going to go shadowy person, 
Nightshade wasn't around yet. You know, I guess there's Shadow Thief, but he's not. He doesn't have enough presence. You know. Yeah. So literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, Doctor Polaris does his best Magneto trick, and he even says "Master of Magnetism." Uh, <laughs> To yank up the metal flooring and try to create a prison. And and Ariana is still being that guy at the party who just latches onto you. You, just, <laughs> you ever seen that episode of Animaniacs where uh, Ben Stein did a guest voice? No. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, he played Leo Pump Handle, but everyone calls me Pip. He corners the Warner Brothers and the Warner sister at a party and just keeps on talking you know, nonstop about stream of consciousness, this banal, boring nonsense uh, for the entire 11-minute the entire short. And, uh, and the, the, the Warners are going crazy just trying to get rid of this guy, but he just keeps clinging. He's like Captain Linger to them. And uh, that that's kind of what Arion is doing here to Dr. Polaris. He's still hanging around him, talking to him. He seems to have convinced himself that uh, Polaris is the closest thing to a peer he has at this gathering. It's just the way he's dressed, his you know, dramatic flair, his arrogant bearing, and that all that bespeaks sorcerer to Arion. So, and and uh, Dr. Polaris is not digging it. He's saying, do, do me a favor, magic man. Stay back and give me room to breathe. Mm-hmm. It's funny. If you do go back to that double page of all the people, there's a hell of a lot of capes and cows and or capes and collars. Uh, you know. Oh yeah. Solvar and Psycho Pirate, Superman, Obsidian, Arion. Yes, that was just the spring trend for nineteen eighty five. Um and then I guess we have to credit Killer Frost for naming these things. She says, uh, as Green Lantern helps her and Firestorm capture one of them, she says, go find another shadow demon to fight. And that is kind of the, the unofficial official name, I guess. Yeah. Sort of what I've always called them. Well, yeah, that's that's definitely the – I'd even go so far as to say the official official name. Yeah. Eventually, go- that's, that's all they're called. It, it right. might be just another one of those cases where uh, it was a placeholder name that uh, Wolfman used in his scripts, you know, uh-huh. just like the Anti-Monitor for that matter. Originally, he was planning on coming up with something a little more descriptive, maybe a little better than just Anti-Monitor, but that's what he was calling the antagonist until such time. And eventually, he just kind of decided that it worked well enough. There was a certain resonance to it, and he went with it and used it in the final script. Yeah. So it may be that the Shadow Demon name came from the same uh, thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to go through my notes here. Um, Earth Two Superman no calls Cyborg by his name, so I can't remember anywhere that those two have connected prior to this. Doesn't mean that they didn't, but um, I'm finding a trying to think back of where they could have connected. I mean, the, the obvious answer is maybe Superman heard. Geoforce call him Cyborg, so he knows to call him Cyborg. He does have super hearing. I'm sure he overheard that. Right. Um, but th- when I – when I again, this was on this reading where I said, wait a minute. How would he know? It made me think, huh, 
now I got to go through and like look through all their appearances and see if there ever was a a precedence for those two characters meeting. Yeah, my my instinct is uh, that you're not going to find one. Yeah. That's a, an interesting pairing there. Hmm. Yeah, so we've got uh, this little uh, quartet of panels here. You know, the, the upper left is the uh, Earth 2 Superman cyborg one you mentioned. Then we have Dawnstar wondering aloud if anyone has seen Harbinger. She's still hanging out with Solovar, who says that uh, Harbinger vanished long ago. Even well, though even though Harbinger's watching them right now. Well, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. that's kind of what unifies these four panels. Yeah. They're arranged mm-hmm. like that with uh, uh, an inset close up of her eyes in the middle and it's the, the weird little uh, sort of uh, hatching effect. You see that all four of these panels are in like the little uh, diamond-shaped pixels. Right. Sort of suggesting that she's looking on them as through a monitor. Right, viewing them through some yeah. kind of instrument like field glasses or something. Yeah. Cuz that's also on the previous Two pages, too, where she's um, – where Green Lantern is zapping one of the um, one of the shadow demons. It also has that rounded edge panel thing and right. the on there, yeah. Which is a big um, – that's a Perez device. You know, like yep. It's rounded like the corners of a monitor, like you said. Mm-hmm. Lower left, uh, Ariana is exclaiming aloud that uh, it was the female. Surely she knew of this. And uh, Simon is joining right in on the hate parade in the lower right, and she'll <laughs> suffer for it, my friend. Trust Simon for that. Yeah, so everyone's starting to wheel around on Harbinger, and she's just sitting there watching, feeling guilty, feeling helpless. You know, just like mother, like daughter. She's like father, like daughter. She just all she can do is watch. Yeah. Not everybody present is quite as uh, wise and rational as Dawnstar in figuring out that uh, you know, Harbinger. Probably isn't responsible because, you know, why would she gather this random assortment of people up here just to six shadow demons on them? And you would think with this collective group and their experience that they would know when you fight shadows, all you got to do is create a big bright light um, because (laughs) – to defeat them because that's exactly what happens um, with the uh, extra little added detail that when the light does go off, in that instant, Obsidian is forced back into his non-shadowed form. While the demon shadows, there's another name, the attackers fearfully flee from the deadly flash. And the heroes try to regain their vision, and then look there, a dark shape moving in from the afterglow. Oh no, it's another shadow demon. <laughs> yeah, funny how it looks exactly mm-hmm. like the shadow demons. Seen thus backlit in silhouette. And this final shadowy shape uh, speaks, tells the assemblage, this attack was not planned, but it was also not unexpected. Please do not blame poor Harbinger. Of all beings, she was not at fault. Here, let me dim these halls so you may see things clearly once more. So finally we get one more coy little close-up shot of of a gloved hand with a metal manacle thing behind it, uh, pressing a couple of buttons on a console. Before we go to that last page, let me just, another really interesting detail. Um, where they're flashed, where, where that panel is, where they're all blinded by the flash, if you count them, there's only 14 because Simon is up in the rafters. So you see how, like, Simon has always been up 
He's always been up in that little rafter right. thing. Because yeah, he's, so. he's been around for three months. He's had a chance to explore. He knows the yeah. – I guess the safe vantage points, or maybe he just feels himself superior to everyone else, so mm-hmm. he seeks the high ground for that reason. Well, and all the rest of them have been on the ground, so it's kind of a nice attention to detail there of not putting Simon in in on that panel. Now, if you can count on Perez for one thing, it's attention to detail. Mm-hmm. You can count on him for a lot of other stuff too, but that's... And, and if you want to take it further too, Geoforce is actually on his knees because he's, in the past couple... In the sequence, fight sequence, he's been dragged downwards. You can see it on the previous page where he's right. 29, yeah. His shadow demon dance partner is trying to drag him down through the floor. Mm-hmm. So, just awesome little details there. So, all right, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your final page. You, you've interrupted at just the right time. I had nothing else to say. Oh, okay. And now we can turn the page to page 32, last of this issue, where the monitor finally stands fully revealed. In all his glory. Yep. And he says to the group, And now let me properly introduce myself. I am the monitor, and I have summoned you here because your universes are about to die. Great cliffhanger there. Down below, next issue blurb, This is only the beginning. Next issue, From the Dawn of Man to The Great Disaster. Yes, capital G, capital D, all you Kirby heads out there. This is a very specific great disaster we're talking about here. <laughs> and then the tagline, The DC Universe Will Never Be the Same. So, awful, awful logo for the monitor. Um, you think they would have came up with something a little better than that. Yeah. Was it even meant to be a logo, do you think, or just I think emphatic it's, lettering? No, I think it's also used in Who's Who, too. Really? I think. All right. Do you have Who's Who with you? Um, no, it's in the other room, but I'm going to quick do a Google search and see if I can find it. Uh, yep, there it is. Uh, uh, two, it's the same exact wonky little blocky lettering yeah. without the exclamation point. How boring. That, yeah. I agree that they could have done better than that. If that's really meant to be his, you know, signature font, as it were, it's, they really could have done a better job than that. I hope that wasn't Todd Klein's work, because John Costanza is the letterer, but you know, Todd Klein usually always comes up with the logos. So, even back in 1985, I think so. I want to say, you know, he, he had a hand in a lot of that stuff. His website is a great website where he goes through. Um, different variations of someone's title logo. Like he'll go through all the Batman logos and he'll go through all the Aquaman ones. Um, and they're not the, – obviously he didn't do all of them if he did any of them. But he sort of shows why certain things were picked and his ideas on them. So um, it's a great website for that. But yeah, that, that always – and uh, you know, as – a reader of DC at the time, if anybody was a longtime reader, you have to imagine, did they, what, what was this last page to them? You know, like there it is. That's him. Okay. Well, we know nothing about him. Clearly he's not an established DC character. His design is interesting. Um, you know, uh, we're taking it for granted now because we just know what that design is. But at the, I'm trying to remember at the time, what did I think of that? You know, and I, I, I probably just was like, Okay, cool. All right, there he is. Wow. Okay, that's the monitor. (laughs) 
in his skirt. <laughs> Tunic. Um, yeah, he just to me, he, he's always kind of looked like a new wave caveman to me. And yeah, you know, when we get around to reading the uh, the origin story of the Monitor and Anti Monitor, you know, as as related in a, in a later issue, I'll I'll go into a little more detail about that. Yeah, that makes sense. That little belt buckle looks like a little wind turbine installed at his waist there. Mm-hmm. So there it is, issue one. I have no more notes. <sighs> I believe, as Chris Everly would say, we've shot our bolt. <laughs> three and hours later. Just about three hours, yeah, and this is just for the second half Oof. of a normal-sized 32-page issue, albeit one without ads. Yeah, clearly these these issues are going to go two, three-parter for each one, just so we can keep our sanity and, and also, you know, make sure we come out with more episodes. Uh, well, we've as we've already, I think, established, we, we've got plenty of episodes worth of stuff. Yep. Talking about the Crisis series itself, going in and out of the crossovers. and I have ideas for a couple of little detours we could take. Great. But for the time being, we are done, folks. Awesome. One down, 12 to go, and then some. <laughs> oh, 11 to go, sorry. Yeah. It's late enough, I've forgotten how to subtract from 12. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. All right, hope you enjoyed what we had to say about uh, issue one, folks. If you did, and also if you didn't, uh, please stop by thecomicforums.com and seek out the talkback thread for the Crisis Tapes episode 11. Let us know uh, how you th- well how you thought we did with this. And uh, if you have any uh, Crisis Kid stories you'd like to share with us that uh, you know, we, we might get around to playing or reading on the air, uh, those options again, email them to us at uh, Peter or Murd at comicgeekspeak.com uh, or uh, send us a voicemail at uh, – uh, I've already lost the number, but we mentioned it a while ago. Uh, it was number 267-702-6642. That's our voicemail number. Or just go to that same thread I just mentioned at uh, thecomicforums.com and post your stuff there. So thanks for uh, hanging around with us, folks. And hopefully we'll be back again uh, before too much longer with another uh, universe-shattering installment of the Crisis Tapes. Sounds good.